Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is Michael Adams again, Nothing But The Truth, part two of the Jesuits' Satanism, which uh, are Jesuits slash Satanism slash Evil Empire. And I was having problems with uh, loading uh, the videos, or at least the audio part of it. So we'll try again, hopefully. <clears throat> I'll start off with that article. Pennsylvania priest sexual tourism case. Pittsburgh, new federal indictment. Well, when was this, by the way? And that, once again, this is, I think I got this from spirituallysmart.com via their, his uh, Facebook page. And this is April 8th, 2015, Associated Press. Pittsburgh, new federal indictment adds two more victims to the case of a Roman Catholic priest accused of traveling to Honduras to have sex with poor street children during missionary trips. Reverend Joseph Marzio, Jr., 69, has been jailed since last fall when federal prosecutors in Johnson, or Jones, excuse me, Johnstown, and John is like John and Quincy Adams or whatever. John Epps. John's town accused him of molesting one boy and possessing child pornography. Two indictments rewarded, returned Tuesday. Also charges the suspended priest with sending $8,000 to a charity to help facilitate the trip, which ended in 2009. None of the alleged victims are named, but all are under the 18, according to the indictment. Anyways, this is an indictment. In the indictment, uh, you can read more of this article if you want on foxnews.com. Uh, Mar Rizio is charged with engaging in illicit sex conduct with foreign, in foreign places, also referred to as sexual tourism, and the act of traveling abroad to commit child sex acts that are illegal in the United States. He also is charged with three counts of transferring money out of country used to promote illegal activity. And uh, I don't know. They must really do have a network. Of course, none of this ever crossed my mind. It's something to do. And the only thing I can think of, in order for a man to even have these kind of notions, to go overseas and to have this networking thing with kids, well, you have to be part of this pedophile ring. So I think probably what we'll do is it will try to, this show is actually will start out with 
Kennedy's interview with um, Keith Hansen, a.k.a. Visigoth. I think that's what we'll do first. We'll try to do that first. Hopefully we can be connected. Looks like we're reconnected. Cross fingers. Say a prayer. Uh, this interview with uh, William H. Kennedy, and it's uh, the Lucifer's, let's get there, let's see, Lucifer's Joe Lodge. The Satanic Rituals Abuse in, in the Catholic Church. And then we'll go from there. We'll try to maybe go to uh, play a couple other one of these, because uh, they're all relevant. So, you know, this whole thing is quote-unquote elite, the ruling elite that we're starting to put the finger to, point the finger to, which is the bishopric, the room, the, uh, the papacy, uh, the black nobility, all the, these people, these uh, parts of these, these the hierarchy, are basically of the Roman Empire. But it's not just them, neither. So there's, it's just like, all these godless men. <laughs> okay, so check it out. Is a Kennedy from the state of Massachusetts, and that would be Bill Kennedy, the author of Lucifer's Lodge: Satanic Ritual Abuse in the Catholic Church, and a soon-to-be-released title, Satanic Crime. A threat in the new millennium. And Bill, we want to welcome you to the Grassy you Knoll. Very nice to be here, Viz. Also, for those of you who are on the net and listening to this, if you can and want to, uh, he has a website, and that would be www.williamhkennedy.com. Now, we've had uh, a number of people come on to approach this ritual abuse uh, issue uh, from several different uh, viewpoints. Uh, what got you on the trail of this? Well, it's uh, quite interesting, Viz, because um, in 1996, I went and met Malachi Martin, sometimes pronounced Malachi Martin on the radio, uh, who was a Catholic writer in New York who was a novelist and uh, nonfiction writer. He wrote primarily about the Catholic Church. And I went down there to collect some biographical information on him for a book I was thinking about writing about Catholic priests. Now, uh, there again, this was 1996, and what Father Martin told me back then was that Cardinal Bernard Law of Boston, uh, who was the in charge of the Catholic Church up here in the Archdiocese of Boston, was running a pedophile ring, and that some of these pedophiles were Satanists. Now, in 1996, I just took that as a kind of ridiculous statement, and I did not, you know, believe Father Martin at the time. Now, over the course of the next few years, I spoke to Father Martin about once a month until uh, about six months before he died in 1999, and he would always bring this up, and I would always roll my eyes on the phone. And I used to say to him, well, you know, I think you might just be getting crank letters. He used to claim he was getting letters from victims up here in Boston that said that Catholic priests had molested them as kids, and some of these priests were Satanists. There again. Now, just to fast forward a bit, uh, after Father Martin died in 1999, in 2002, the Boston Globe broke a story 
that Cardinal Bernard Law of Boston was, in fact, running a pedophile ring of Catholic priests. And what I did then for the next year and a half is I just sat back and uh, collected newspaper items from the mainstream media about the priest pedophile scandal. And what I did is I just waited for cases that had satanic ritual abuse elements in them. Now, I didn't have to wait very long. A couple months after that January 2002 initial break of the story, the Boston Globe reported that Monsignor Frederick Ryan, who was the vice chancellor of the Archdiocese of Boston, had sexually abused a boy in the 1980s, and he had tattooed this fellow with a devil figure on his inner thigh. Now, there again, this is the Boston Globe reporting this. Mm -hmm. And uh, what he had done, Monsignor Frederick Ryan, is he took photographs of this boy uh, in the nude after he sexually abused him, and he used this photograph to blackmail him into being his homosexual lover for many, many years, and even insisted on officiating at this man's wedding many years later. Um, now, in a cult war, a tattoo like that is called the Devil's Mark, and that is an initiation tattoo that is used by covens to bring new members in. Um, now, what I did is I collected a bunch of these stories that were very similar, and I paraphrased them a bit and put an introduction, and that is the book Lucifer's Lodge, Satanic Ritual Abuse in the Catholic Church. And I'm in the middle of publishers right now. I'm switching publishers, and I'm expanding the book Lucifer's Lodge. I'll have three more chapters on three more Satanic Ritual cases, and I'll have a full photo section, and that should be out in the fall of 2005. Let me ask you this, because I, I have a question about uh, the scandal that broke, I guess, what was it, two years ago? Uh, yeah, 2002. Uh, now, I'm wondering, because I don't know how you believe, Bill, but you know, on this show and the listeners, we don't believe that anything gets out in the mainstream news unless it's managed. So it's very interesting. That, yes, you got the Globe coming out with a story about this, exposing it. So I can't help, because I mean, there's so many other conspiracies that are suppressed. So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, is this payback? to the Catholic Church, and if so, who benefits? Okay, this is a rare case of the mainstream media actually legitimately breaking a case. Now, what the Boston Globe did is in 1993, there was a priest named Father James Porter who was exposed as a pedophile, and the Boston Globe put a team of reporters on examining and trying to uncover if there are any more pedophile priests in the Archdiocese of Boston. Uh, what happened with the Boston Globe is they petitioned and received permission to look at some of the church's files, and how they did that was through the Attorney General of Massachusetts, a guy named Thomas Riley. And Thomas Riley first uh, forced the Archdiocese of Boston to release their secret files on pedophile priests. So I know most cases uh, it's a matter of management when it gets out in the mainstream media, but there are exceptions, and this is one of the exceptions, and the Boston Globe won the Pulitzer Prize for doing so. Uh, I've looked through most of these official secret church documents, and uh, there are even cases of ritual abuse that came out from them 
which never would have if Thomas Riley hadn't ordered these files released. No, I don't doubt that the journalism in this case was legitimate. And this is my take, and I'm, you know, I'm not forcing to go down that road. But I, I still think that it's interesting, much like um, thinking back to the Watergate story, that when stuff like this is exposed, uh, it, I believe it's usually because there's a point to it, there's a payback somewhere, someone's going down, and so they get um, the powers that be get very cozy with the press, and therefore, you know, we have the situation exposed. Um, in the case, of course, of, of Watergate, um, you know, I, I've said this, like Woodward and Bernstein were, were spooked at that story. Ray Charles could have written that thing. So, I mean, I don't see this as being a big journalistic coup back then. This one, however, may have gone that, that way. It may have, it may well, have been. The, the big thing that happened is, and there were helpers inside the Archdiocese of Boston when they released, they or, originally they were ordered to release only the files of priests that were accused of pedophilia, that is sex with a pre-adolescent boy or girl. But they released other files, too. Um, very strange. Someone in, in the chancery of the Archdiocese of Boston put files in there that the judge didn't want, and I don't think the Archdiocese necessarily wanted the press mm -hmm. to get. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the thing. So what part of what you're saying is right. There was definitely a leak in the chancery. It wasn't... It wasn't all the doing of the newspaper or the attorney general or the archdiocese. There were there were documents linked, uh, leaked to the general public that were never meant to be. So someone in there kind of had a deep throat type uh, position in this case. Uh, do you know that this went back to any political figures of note, this uh, abuse? Uh, no, no, no political figures came into play in the records that were released, which was just about all the records concerned. Uh, there was no one politically involved that, that came out. It was mostly cases of degenerate priests who were sexually abusing preteen boys and sometimes women, and they were transferred to new parishes by cardinal law without giving the new parish any sort of warning or anything at all. They were just tried to keep covering up, and they kept shifting. Now, consider in Massachusetts, Cardinal Bernard Law had to resign as Archbishop of Boston, because of this pedophile scandal, he did not face criminal charges. And the Bishop of Springfield, Massachusetts, Bishop Dupre, had to resign because he himself was a pedophile. So what we're looking at here is a, a hierarchical cabal mm -hmm. of protecting and promoting pedophile priests and those who protect pedophile priests within the church structure. It's a top-down problem. What I like to say is that the oldest symbol of the Christian church is a fish, and a fish rots from the head down. And that's what we're looking at. It's a top-down problem. These people never would have survived or been able to operate if they did not receive the support of the bishops and cardinals. Now, the Dallas Morning News reports from their examination, two-thirds of all Roman Catholic cardinals and bishops in the world knowingly and willfully transferred pedophile priests with the full knowledge that they would sexually abuse other women and children. So we're looking at a major, major worldwide scandal here. Uh, were there any particular orders that popped up uh, in this scandal, more so than others? Religious order? Yeah. Um, what what the the uh, Dallas Morning News 
came out with the fact that the uh, Franciscans and the Jesuits uh, were transferring priests internationally mm-hmm. to, uh, for example, if a priest sexually abused someone in Guatemala and they were a Franciscan, they transfer them to England or Germany. So the Jesuits and the Franciscans and the Salian priests especially have a huge international pedophile problem where they transfer pedophile priests on an international level. So you're looking at a, a, a microcosm of this in each diocese. Priests are transferred from parish to parish within a diocese, and globally, members of religious orders who are pedophiles, like in the Franciscans, Jesuits, they are transferred internationally. And this is all to avoid scandal and criminal prosecution. Uh, now I'm going to take a little sidebar here for a second, and we'll get back into uh, the flow. Sure. But um, Malachi Martin. Right. Uh, did he uh, dialogue at all with you about the Jesuits? Uh, yes, he did. He said there was a huge pedophile problem within the Jesuit order, and it pretty much was confirmed by what the uh, Dallas Morning News reported. Uh, the funny thing about Father Martin is he always was very ambivalent about the Jesuits right. because he was a Jesuit at one time. He left the order but remained a Catholic priest. And uh, the thing is he would always have good and bad things to say about it. You know, they, they did educate him, and they did a very good job with him. But he felt it had become a corrupt organization, and he even wrote a book about it called The Jesuits. Yeah, I, I, I can't tell you I read that in depth. I didn't think he got to the core. I, uh, I think he pulled some punches. Uh, we've had on this show Eric John Phelps and Charles D. Wilcox, both of whom have written books about uh, the Jesuits and the Vatican. Uh, Eric's, are you familiar with Eric's work? I, I've seen it, yeah. All right. Um, and uh, Eric treated it more across the centuries where uh, Wilcox kind of um, focused on the uh, Civil War and what was going on there. Um, now, getting back into what we were doing, again, uh, taking one step past the Jesuits, uh, any uh, Vatican involvement? Any um... Huge Vatican involvement. Huge Vatican involvement. And that includes our former Pope, Pope John Paul II, and our current Pope, Pope Benedict. Both of these rascals knew of the entire global situation of the transferring of pedophile priests both within dioceses and internationally, and they did everything they could do to protect these pedophile priests. Now, our current Pope, Pope Benedict, in uh, 2003, he sent out a message to all the bishops and cardinals in the world that a 1960s Vatican document, uh, which basically told all of the cardinals and bishops in the world to transfer pedophile priests and avoid scandal, was still in effect. Okay? Mm -hmm. So when when the stuff started to hit the fan, so to speak, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time told everyone that that this older document was still valid and that they should follow the same old rules that's basically remain silent with the press and keep transferring these pedophile priests and i tell you something right now viz as we speak the roman catholic church under pope benedict is still protecting pedophile priests who are sexually abusing children somewhere in the world as we speak i think the two biggest horrors 
that people don't really want to believe in, and certainly are shielded from to begin with. But if they were to be approached with this information, the two biggest horrible scandals is global sex slaving and ritual abuse, and the other would be global narcotic trafficking. Right. The whole war on drugs, we're not, you know, this is obviously not your daily work, but the war on drugs is an absolute joke. I mean, it, oh, it's, yeah, it's, it, yeah. Well, you have to remember, when the government declares war on something, the opposite usually happens. For example, they declared a war on poverty in the 70s. Now there's more poor people than ever. They declared a war on drugs, and then the inner cities were flooded with crack cocaine in the 80s. So when you hear a war on something, expect the opposite if it's coming from the government. We're speaking with William H. Kennedy, author of Lucifer's Lodge, Satanic Ritual Abuse in the Catholic Church, about which we're speaking right now. His other title is Satanic Crime, A Threat in the New Millennium. And uh, let me ask you about that, Bill. Um, how far along is that from being um, um, put out on the market? It will come out sometime this summer, uh, I would think in late June or July. It's being published by Dragon Key Press, which is out on the West Coast, uh, United States. We got a, it has a full photo section, so it, there's a slight delay because we have to get uh, permission from, you know, UPS and uh, I'm sorry, United Press International and uh, the Associated Press to use these photographs. UPS will let us mail anything. That was a slip. Uh, the uh, thing is, we have to uh, get a few odds and ends together, and it will be out. Now, Satanic Crime, A Threat in the New Millennium, and there's a, the first chapter of that book in the photo section is free on my webpage, williamhkennedy.com, and people can take a look at it. Now, that first chapter is called A Brief History of Modern Satanism, and it traces the Satanism movement from uh, Aleister Crowley through Anton LaVey and Michael Aquino and the Process Church of Final Judgment and uh, some other spin-off groups of uh, this sort of Satanism. It also has a section on the Skull and Bone Society, which I believe is a satanic organization. Mm -hmm. So that's worth taking a look at it in and of itself. And it's a pretty independent chapter. You get a lot out of it. And there again, it's at williamhkennedy.com, and it's free. Uh, again, we're speaking about the, um, the hardness of these scandals. Um, what was the, uh, the acceptance like by the public? Um, it was surprisingly good. You have to remember this. What I did in this book is I really didn't do any research for this book. The Boston Globe, Irish Times, Boston Herald, and a few other mainstream media outlets were kind enough to do it for me. Uh, I pulled together these stories from these news agencies and put them together in a book. And, of, of course, I paraphrase, but it's also a very well-documented book. Every, every uh, chapter has endnotes right at the end, you know, 30, 40, 50 endnotes. And uh, the the public reaction, people were already stunned and shocked before the book came out, and this book just reaffirmed their stun and shock. Now, what surprises me is that um, how many people are accepting that, you know, when you're dealing something as nefarious, with something as nefarious as pedophilia, you're just... Uh, bound to get diabolical elements like Satanism, and that doesn't seem to surprise people too much. People aren't too stunned by the fact that someone who would rape a kid would also be involved in Satanic rituals. It doesn't seem too far-fetched. And I thought people would have a hard time accepting it, but they don't. What about trying to get a publisher for this kind of uh, uh, 
hot button topic? Um, it was wasn't too tough. I got a my original publisher was Sophia Perennis, which is an academic press, and they 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 were pretty good about doing it. Um, I switched publishers because I want to bring the price down and get a photo section in it, which uh, an academic press they tend to be poorer and unable to do such things, but it wasn't too difficult. Um, the big thing is, uh, the major way to get a, a, a book a bestseller in this country is to have Barnes and & Noble and Borders order a couple of copies for each of their stores. That's how, that's how bestsellers are determined. And those two, those two companies ordered my book, not in all their stores, but uh, just in the Northeast. And I, uh, it's all better than I had originally anticipated, to be honest. Yeah, uh, well, you know, that whole idea about mass merchandising books has also brought another uh, death blow to people who are trying to get out perhaps unpopular work, but nevertheless crucial. Um, I had, just as an aside, say when I look back in the 50s, the ones who were, uh, the authors who were really trying to get people to understand what was going on behind the curtain was uh, Devin Adair. Um, I don't even know if they're around anymore. I, I, I don't think so, but I had a, I was surprised at seeing that. Also, Huntington House recently has, has still been a voice for those who want to get out this kind of information that so often is cloaked by mainstream media. Um, going back to uh, any other kind of uh, affiliations with this uh, ritualistic abuse, did you encounter, um, so let's say, uh, personages in the Knights of Malta? Um, I did not. However, some... Um People in the Knights of Malta did appear in um, a list. Uh, now, I'll just have to explain this very quickly. Sure. There was a fellow named Marc Dutroux who was a Belgian who was arrested in 1996 for being a sex slave, slave trafficker of pre-adolescent girls and teenage girls uh, over in Belgium. Now, um what had happened was when he was on trial, he was just sent to jail for life last year in 2004. He, uh, the judge who was trying him asked for women to come forward who were former victims of uh, his cabal. You know, he had people who worked with him. And ten women came forward, and um, they gave a list of people they saw at these orgies that Dutroux used to organize for them. And there were members of the Knights of Malta. I don't want to say their names, but I can give you a few other names. Uh, the King of Belgium himself was identified as being at these sex orgies organized by Dutroux. And not only that, but uh, Dutroux had murdered one of his partners. And going through his partner's uh, personal effects, the police found a letter from a satanic high priest asking for children for a ritual they were going to perform on April 30th, which is a satanic holiday. So uh, with the Mark Dutroux affair, you see a nexus of things like the Bilderbergers, the Knights of Malta, Satanism, and pedophilia all coming together in one location. And that's I have a whole section on that in my last chapter of Satanic Crime. Uh, now, I should say that Within the Dutroux affair, there were no Catholic priests identified, but there were high-ranking political officials well, uh, in Belgium and Europe and internationally. 
And there's a book called The Pedophile Dossier, which is out. It's in French, but I'm going to try and get it translated in English, which actually gives a testimony of these 10 women who came forward to give their accounts. Now, it's funny. After they gave their accounts, the king of Belgium removed this judge from the case and put another one in who discounted their testimonies. Uh, you mentioned dates, and it just made me uh, think of, um, in your research, or even in your reading that may not have gotten into the book, um, have you come across any special activities around the dates, say, of the uh, winter solstice and the summer solstice? Now, that's very strange. I, I assume that apart from that uh, letter, no. But from what I do know, these, these from the Dutru affair, these people somewhere in Europe or in the world, there's even weekly orgies. Now, um, there is a member of the Belgian parliament, a woman named Alexandra Cohen, who uh, has an article out on the web, and I will send you a copy of it. Okay. Uh, she pointed out that they had a um, parliamentary inquiry, which is kind of like a congressional inquiry. It's not a trial but people are asked to come forward and are questioned. Now, some police came before this Belgian parliament inquiry concerning the Dutru affair, and uh, the police admitted that these sex orgies did go on under oath in the Belgian parliament. Now, that did not make them criminally liable, but the police did admit to complicity in these orgies, which had been rumored for years in Belgium, and people call them the King's Pink Ballets. That's what these weird orgy rituals were called. So we have confirmation from the Belgian police via the Belgian parliament that these things did occur. Well, you know what's coming back to me? Am I correct in, in um, stating that it also revolved around one particular uh, mansion? Now, it's very, very strange because um, Marc Dutroux owned seven houses, maybe even eight, but seven were in his name all around Belgium which had dungeons in which he would keep his captive girls in underneath. Now, he was a, an unemployed electrician who was on a psychiatric state disability, kind of like uh, SSDI here, Social Security Insurance. How he could afford these uh, houses is, is a whole other question. But there was one mansion in particular that was mentioned by all of these girls that was in Belgium. Excuse me for this quip, but when you said how, how in the world could he have saved for it, it reminds me of the old uh, Clouseau movies when Clouseau's wife buys this you know, wonderful car and uh, Clouseau can't figure it out, so it's one of his uh, sidekicks says, but how did she save for the car? And he goes, in the cookie jar. So, <laughs> right, 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 right. Never mind, a yeah. little, uh, little levity there. But uh, getting back into this, uh, how are the prostitutes and the victims – uh, acquired. I mean, is there like a whole phalanx, let's say, of uh, MK Ultra tools? Or well, know? it's very interesting when you look at the Dutru affair. Um, what he did is he kidnapped. He he used to like to get preteen girls, and what he would do initially with them is he had these very sparse dungeons constructed, uh, dug into the ground underneath his house, and he constructed them so well that even when the police came to search one of these houses with dogs. The dogs could not sniff through. There were actually girls locked in these dungeons in the basement. What he would do is he would use sensory deprivation and 
you know, rape them and photograph them in uh, these very small dungeons. And what happened over time is they developed what's known as the Stockholm Syndrome. And that is a case wherein a kidnapped victim starts to identify and, and cooperate with their abductor. It's a very strange mental dynamic. It stems from the fact that these victims know that their captor has the power to kill them but chooses not to do so. And from some bizarre mechanism of the mind, people become almost grateful or see their captor as a savior figure. And the most common and well-known story like this is that of Patty Hearst, that's right. mm-hmm. who was kidnapped by the Simonese Liberation Army in the 70s. Now, Patty Hearst was a rich socialite who was going, 20 years old and going to Berkeley University, and she was kidnapped by this radical group and kept in a closet and given LSD and raped. And like a few months after she was kidnapped and taken, she was in robbing banks with them. You know, she identified with her aggressors. Now, the big thing about the Stockholm Syndrome is once people get into that mode, the victim, uh, they will do things that are against their own uh, best interests, and they will do things that are contrary to what they did before they were kidnapped. Now, Patty Hearst was an heir to the Hearst newspaper fortune, and she was a Berkeley student who wanted to become a clothing designer. Robbing banks was not in her purview (laughs) before she was kidnapped. So that's an example of the Stockholm Syndrome, and that is what you see with these girls who were kidnapped by Dutroux. It was a form of brainwashing, and he would uh, use, the, use these dungeons to do it primarily. He would leave them down there for about six months. And by the time they came out of those dungeons, they had been, you know, raped and humiliated and everything you can imagine. They were, they were pretty much Manchurian candidates for his sex slave outfit. But are these um, who are used, uh, I mean, are these runaway kids? No, no, no. He grabbed kids from the general population. Well, are we talking abductions? Abduction, yes. When, uh, I would ask you, um, I'm sorry, finish that, William, and I'll ask. No, he would basically grab preteen girls in parks and uh, schoolyards and things like that. And he had cohorts, and, he, and Dutroux also claims that he had police officers who helped him do this, members of the uh, Belgian police force were also involved with this ring. What do you think when you hear of yet another story of, um, especially it seems to be a young female, uh, probably even maybe pre-puberty, when they're taken, uh, and oftentimes from their residences? Sure. What what goes through your mind when you hear that? Well, I think it's one of these um, sex slave operating groups taking them, you know? Yes. I, I, I honestly, honestly think that. And you'll get a lone nut like in the Elizabeth Smart case yeah. who'll do this. But I think on the whole, it's usually one of these international sex slave trade rings, which, which you know, even the mainstream media acknowledges that it, it, it's pretty huge, you know. Um, have you ever heard of Kathleen Sullivan? I have heard of Kathleen Sullivan. Is she the girl who claimed to have been abducted or raped by her father? Well, well, you know, that covers a lot of people, unfortunately. She wrote a book called Unshackled, and um, she was saying that her father was a Nazi uh, hiding out in um, Pennsylvania, Dutch Pennsylvania, and um, raised her up to be 
whatever she had to be. And this is one of the situations, and this is where I was heading. Um, I don't know that you came across this, but let, let me know. Are you seeing a frequency of, say, kids that are absolutely raised by their parents or father or whatever uh, to be uh, used in this manner? I have heard of it, and I've read interviews uh, with Kathy Sullivan. I mean, she says some strange stuff. She claims she was sexually abused as a baby, if I remember correctly. But, um, yes, I have heard of some parents actually doing this, and they just caught a fellow here. I think it was in Massachusetts or around here, and I'll look it up on the Internet. But uh, he went to a Walmart or somewhere like that and tried to uh, develop some photographs of his own daughter who and they were actually kitty porn photos. So you do hear about things like that, sure. Yeah, that's another one that's very hard to digest. I mean, let's face it, that's that I mean that that goes right to the core of evil. And and along those lines, so let's well first let me also say that you're listening to the Grassy Knoll on Day City Micro Radio, AM sixteen ten WDCX. And we have with us William H. Kennedy. Uh we're talking about his book right now, Lucifer's Lodge. His website is WilliamHKennedy.com. And you also said for the book that's coming out, Satanic Crime Bill, that there is a chapter on the net that they can read. Oh, yes, definitely so, yeah. All right. Um, moving along with this idea of um, occultism, I wanted to ask just a couple of more uh, questions about certain specific uh, groups, shall we say. Uh, any trace of Opus Dei in this? Um, Opus Dei, um, they, as of now, have had priests, who were, have been accused of pedophilia. Now, they're a very strange group. I should also say I'm, I'm a lifelong Catholic myself, so I'm just making observations about my own church. I'm not Catholic bashing. I'm a Catholic myself, Catholic grammar school graduate and such. So um, if there's any Catholics out there, I, I'm a Catholic too. Um, Opus Dei has had priests who were accused of pedophilia, but uh, no one's really gone after them as far as getting uh, their records because their records are uh, in, in, technically in the Vatican, which is impossible to get. Uh, they're a prelature. They're an odd organization. They have an international hold, but they don't necessarily, their priests don't answer to their cardinals and bishops. They answer to their prelate in Rome who is directly under the pope. And, whose uh, name evades me. I can't think of him. <laughs> which pope? Which pope would that be? Uh, uh, the pope, no, no, I'm saying the, the prelate of Opus Dei is, um, he answers only to the pope, whatever pope is in okay. power at the time. Okay. Our current pope is not Opus Dei, and there's never been an Opus Dei priest who became pope as of yet. Um, but they, they tend not to answer to local bishops and cardinals. They tend to answer straightly to the pope himself in Opus Dei. Again, another sidebar question regarding Opus Dei. Um, have you seen them uh, somewhat have a proximity to Ratzinger? Uh, yes, they're very close to uh, Pope Benedict, who used to be Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. He loves them. He is not a member of their group, as I say, but he was always a huge and strong supporter of Opus Dei. Opus Dei is probably the most powerful single organization in the Roman Catholic Church, outside of the, the Curia, which is the Pope's council. Um, one other question about occult societies. Was there any trace? Now, on, on uh, the, the party line, these two, these two organizations apparently don't like one another. I think that may have been a case once upon a time, but I think it's all one happy family now. 
any trace of occultic high-degree Freemasonry? Uh, yes, it, it's very, very strange because um, when you look at some of these rituals, uh, especially uh, here in Boston, there were sex magic rituals which look a lot like the OTO, which was a Freemasonic spinoff. And there are, uh, you know, there was also connections between the P2 Freemasonic Lodge and the Vatican years ago. But yeah, there are a Vatican Freemasonic type rituals merged into uh, some of these cases of sexual abuse. And I could give you an example if you'd like. Yeah, I think that would be good. Okay, here in the um, Archdiocese of Boston, we uh, we had two priests who uh, their um, records were released uh, secretly by that person I was talking about earlier who works in the Archdiocese. The first uh, priest I will talk about is Father Robert Meffin. Now, what Father Robert Meffin did is he recruited young girls to become um, nuns, and these girls were basically... Uh, 12 or 13, this was back in the 60s and 70s, and back in those days when girls wanted to become nuns, they generally went to a special high school when they were 13 or 14, and he would take them, uh, he would recruit them into the Sisters of St. Joseph and take them down to Kingston, Mass., which had this high school, and he would sexually abuse them in secret rituals. Uh, in these sex secret rituals he had with them, uh, he identified himself as Jesus Christ. And what he told them is that they must keep this a secret and that sexual contact with him uh, would lead to various mystical stages. Now, this sounds a lot like Aleister Crowley, who was a 33rd degree Freemason, mm -hmm. who uh, developed a lot of things uh, from Freemasonry that involved sex rituals. Uh, there was also things where he told one young girl he was the great architect of the universe, I found this out, which is a Masonic term. So within this corpus, you see uh, this very, very strange mix of Roman Catholicism, Freemasonry, and sex rituals within the case of uh, Father Robert Methon. Now, there was another priest who was doing the same things, named Father James Foley, who was up in Salem, Massachusetts, of all places. He was assigned to a, a church there. He had a woman who was his girlfriend who had had a, a lobotomy, and he too used to have her worship him as Jesus Christ in sex magic ceremonies. And, you know, he promised her the world as well, and, uh, you know, he attached mystical stages to sexual contact with him. Now, what happened to him, uh, Father James Foley, he kind of uh, lost his discretion and went off his rocker and started to tell people from his pulpit during Mass that he was the Savior of Salem, that he was, uh, you know, the creator of the universe. And uh, this all came to a head when he was uh, caught running red lights in Salem one night, and what he told the police who pulled him over was that he had special rights because he was the savior and that, you know, the lights didn't apply to him because more or less he was telling them he was God. So not only not only did he think that he was God, but, you know, he thought he was above the laws of physics, that another car coming 
the other way wouldn't hit him if he ran a red light. Yeah, baby. So, uh, but there again, there were a lot of ritual elements that seemed like Freemasonry within what he was doing to uh, a couple of his girlfriends, including the lobotomized woman, who, may I add, he had a hand in murdering but was never prosecuted for. He uh, Basically, she took an overdose of drugs, and he left and came back when she knew she would be dead and then called the police. Uh, how much homosexuality uh, went on? Um, well, that, that brings us to the case of a name you probably heard a lot, Father Paul Shanley. Yeah. Father Paul Shanley was a priest in the Archdiocese of Boston who in the 1970s and 80s ran uh, a wayward, minister, uh, wayward uh, ministry for runaway children and teenagers. Uh, he sexually abused a lot of the teenagers and preteen boys that he encountered in his street ministry. Basically, he went out and uh, recruited street kids and offered them material aid and food and shelter and clothes, mostly material things, but he seduced a great many of them. Now, uh, there's a strange link because he used to recruit uh, boys out of a place called Cardell's Cafe in Harvard Square in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was kind of a hippie hangout. Now, a Protestant youth worker who was working back then said that he saw Paul Shanley talking with members of the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which is a satanic church, which also used to recruit out of Cardell's Cafe, and he shared information with them about the whereabouts of wayward boys and girls. So uh, it, it's very, very strange. You have an occult link there. Now, uh, Shanley was uh, pretty much openly gay. The archdiocese used to try and put the clamps on him, but he always used to threaten the then Cardinal of Boston, Mon uh, uh, Cardinal Medeiros, with exposing the whole gay cabal within the church. Now, Paul Shanley is also the one of the founding members and the spiritual father of NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association. So he was a strong gay activist and a strong man-boy love activist, and he used to uh, go to NAMBLA meetings and even Catholic church meetings and make outrageous statements like, sex between adults and children is normal, and sex between children and animals is normal. Now, what happened to Shanley is it got so hot here that the uh, Catholic Church kind of got rid of him. He went out to Palm Springs in California, and with another Catholic priest named Father White, he opened up two gay hotels called the Whispering Palms and the Cabana Club, and these were motels that uh, catered to pedophiles on an international level, and Shanley had, uh, he used to say mass at a church in California, and he used to recruit preteen and teen boys to come to this uh, gay motel, the Whispering Palms, and sexually service rich pedophiles who came from all over the world to go there. Uh, Shanley has sent, since been sent to prison for the rest of his life, and his uh, partner, Father White, who uh, technically owned the Cabana Club and the Whispering Palms, committed suicide in Thailand after Shanley was arrested. So you have this huge gay pedophile Nambla cult right under the surface in the Archdiocese of Boston, which there again has international connections. Whenever you mention or anybody mentions the S word, I always have to ask, do we really think he was 
Uh, did he commit suicide or was he suicided? Um, the father white in Thailand. Yeah. It could be a case of either. Uh, I would suspect that he committed suicide because he faced uh, a long prison term upon his return to the United States. But it's within the realm of possibilities that someone knocked him off to shut him up. I, 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 I'm very suspicious of suicides now. Right. A friend of mine, Gary Webb, right. was suicided. He's someone I emailed and spoke to on the phone with a few times. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson, who I met once many years ago in California very briefly, also was suicided, uh, a.k.a. murdered. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I've known people who've, who've suffered the fate you're talking about. In the case of Father White, it could have gone anyway, but he did face a big sentence here, so it, it, it might have been just a suicide. Uh, I want to move on to the, the core of the next book and, and how your research went uh, for both of these, but uh, um, I'm curious, you know, this is all male-driven. Have you ever come across anything that, uh, there was some involvement by nuns? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely so. I don't cover it so much in my book, but uh, there's a film out on DVD called The Magdalene Sisters, mm -hmm. and this was a movie that was made in Ireland a few years ago. And um, what, what Magdalene houses were set up, actually originally in medieval times, to be reform houses for prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And over time, they became more or less slave labor camps. But the nuns who ran the Magdalene houses in Ireland used to sexually abuse the women and girls who were sent there, many of whom were just single mothers who, uh, you know, had children and were not married and then were sent there. Many of them were sexually abused by nuns for many, many years. Uh, they were also sexually abused by many of the priests who went there. Uh, on that DVD, the Magdalene Sisters, they also have a one-hour documentary that was made by Channel 4 in England where they uh, interview these women. And uh, there, there's nothing less than ritual abuse involved with a great deal of the sex that was forced upon them by nuns and priests. Did you ever find out what happens to these um, uh, sexual and uh, ritual abuse victims when it's over, whatever over means? Um, okay, most sexual abuse victims suffer a form of brainwashing of one sort or another. Basically, these are uh, most most of these victims are from alcoholic homes. Uh, the Catholic Church targets their victims well, and someone raised in an alcoholic home is, uh, you know, they're raised and conditioned to uh, cover up and take responsibility for the bad actions of adults. For example. Uh, a mother might say, uh, Daddy wouldn't drink so much if you keep your room cleaner. Right. You know, they're made to feel guilty. And they're also taught to lie for adults. Like the father will say, don't tell Mommy I was drinking when she went out to the store. And this is how these kids live, and this is how they're actually raised. So by the time a kid like that is six or seven, he already is pretty much brainwashed. And all an abusive priest has to do is to step into an, uh, uh, the authority figure in this person's life, and they're already brainwashed. They can do more or less what they want. So uh, after these kids grow up and such, they're so used to lying and covering up and, you know, taking personal responsibility for the bad actions of others that they usually don't tell anybody about the abuse till many, many years later when they're middle-aged when they start to get, you know, a bit of a bird's eye view about their lives, they start to understand that they were victims. So uh, that's why you see so many former victims of clergy abuse 
actually coming out with their stories when they're in their late 30s and 40s. Before that time, they're still kind of under the spell of the brainwashing that went along with it. And remember, these priests tell these kids that it's the kid's fault that the sexual encounter happened. Mm. So they have a strong, strong sense of guilt. And it's not till they hit middle age that they're even able to see that they're victims as opposed to victimizers. What about the state of, let's say, those, those dungeon captives? Um, a, a lot of them, like the 10 that came forward, Basically, they were dumped when they got too old to um, sexually service men anymore. And uh, they just went back out into society. And many of them had very hard hard lives as well. And they pretty much kept it quiet uh, for many years until this judge came out and did a general call for former victims. And out of the 10 that came forward, there's probably thousands of others who are probably still under the spell of the brainwashing. Or uh, a big thing I get, I get a lot of letters from people, letters and emails from people who were victims of uh, clergy sexual abuse who don't want to come forward or sue or anything because they have families of their own now and they don't want their own children to know this happened to them until they're adults. You know, they don't, they don't want their kids to have to suffer what may, you know, what other people might say or kids at sure. school. Sure. So a lot of people are quiet because they want to protect their families. The other thing I get, get and this is very sad, Viz, I get a lot of uh, snail mail letters from people who are in uh, various houses of corrections mm-hmm. and even mental institutions who are victims of pedophile priests. And they basically say that their their lives went down after the sexual abuse. And many of them turned to drugs and alcohol, or in some cases the drugs and alcohol were actually introduced to them by their sexual abusers who were clergy. So, uh, I mean, they have horrible lives. They have trouble keeping jobs. They have drug and alcohol dependency problems. They have horrible, horrible problems with authority and authority figures. They can't tolerate their boss. And... Uh, Many of them, their lives just completely, they're they're so falling apart that I'll give you an example. One of the people that was supposed to testify against Paul Shanley in his trial, which was just a few months ago, uh, he, he, you know, he started drinking again and just disappeared back into the homeless population. Mm -hmm. The last he was seen, he was drinking alcohol. So um, many of them just, you know, they have horrible lives and usually wind up drug and chemically dependent, you know. Uh, this is the second hour of the Grassy Knoll. Um, it's been uh, two heavy hours, and we're with right now William H. Kennedy, the author of Lucifer's Lodge, Satanic Ritual Abuse in the Catholic Church. We're going to talk about his next title uh, in a minute, and that is Satanic Crime, A Threat in the New Millennium. His website is williamhkennedy.com. And um, have you ever heard of Dr. Ellen Lachter? I've heard of Dr. Ellen Lachter, yes. Well, she preceded you, so, I mean, you can imagine these have been two uh, kind of uh, heavy-duty hours. Oh, right, 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 yeah. Yeah, if you get a chance, you can check out her site, too, because she mentions the uh, the different um, categories of abuse. Uh, one of them was the Stockholm Syndrome. Um, so uh, you might want to peruse that. I don't know if she'd be a source for you, but she's uh, she's uh, really uh, de- very dedicated. To I'll, trying I'll to- certainly take a look okay. at it. Okay. Now, um, before we go into the, to your next one, uh, your next book, Satanic Crime, and I don't, I really want them to buy the book, so I'm not going to drain you for what's in there. But uh, you know, during your research, even though you said you mined a lot of the information from uh, mainstream newspapers, 
if anybody got wind, and I'm sure they did, of what you were doing, um, did you have any um, ha- harassment or? Oh, I I, uh, I uncovered what turned out to be a legitimate hit on my life, a contract on my life, which came about, which I found out about through a very roundabout way I can't get into, okay. but the people have paid to try to have me killed, which kind of uh, backed up in their face, and I get daily phone and email harassment and threats and all sorts of things, but this one particular case, it was an acute case of someone who solicited someone from organized crime to have me killed and have it look either like a suicide or an accident. That that was the conditions of the contract. Right. You don't have to go. You can say whatever you wish or nothing at all about this. But I'm just curious. Did you did you realize the event had occurred, or did you find about this in in, um, in uh, retrospect? I found out about it in retrospect because a uh, I can't say which, but a member of a fully made member of a a crime organization in the Massachusetts area was offered the job. And the thing is, most even organized crime people don't want anything to do with pedophilia Mm -hmm. and don't want anything to do with pedophilia cover-up because if they're ever sent to prison and it's found out that they did this, it's pretty much a death sentence for them. Uh, so this person informed me as a means to deflect such attention off himself. He did not want to be involved in getting rid of a pedophile researcher who was trying to expose pedophiles. I can't get too much into it because if I do, I, I, his identity might become known, and I certainly don't want that. I don't like this person's way of life. I don't like what he does, but I certainly appreciate the fact that he tipped me off to this. Uh, yeah, no doubt. Um <laughs> Uh, what about satanic crime? How much can you tell us about it? In other words, why is it a threat in the new millennium? Okay, my book, Satanic Crime, basically looks at cases of serial killers who were also uh, Satanists. And what I found in my research is that the, the cases I cover, many of them had strong connections to the federal government. And I will give you one off the bat, Charles Manson. In 1967, Charles Manson was in prison doing a 10-year federal stretch for grand theft auto and pimping. Uh, He went before a parole board, and uh, what he told the parole board was, is if you let me out, I will reoffend. I want to stay. Let me at least do my last year. Prison is my home. I don't know how to function out there. He begged the parole board not to release him. And this federal parole board, what did they do? They gave him 100 bucks and a one-way ticket to San Francisco. And in two or three months, he had the family formed who went on a murderous rampage. So uh, you have to remember, all the federal government has to do to cause trouble, and I believe they're in, involved in a program of managed chaos, mm-hmm. which basically means they keep things crazy so they can stay on top of the power structure. Right. All they need to do is they, they have a bird's-eye view of the uh, federal prisons and federal federally run mental institutions, all they need to do is release the right sort of nut who will cause trouble. Yeah. This is one of the things they do, and Manson was one of those nuts. And it's funny, I interviewed Vincent Bugliosi, who wrote Helter Skelter for my book, right. and what he told me was that he used to go up to Manson and uh, during the trial and said, you know, Charlie, no matter what, you're going to jail. 
And Manson used to say, you mean like the one you threw me out of? You mean the one that, you know, I never wanted to leave? Right. You know, you put someone like me on the street and you wonder that all chaos breaks out and now I'm demonized, you know? Sure. So you, 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 you get a lot of things like that, you know? Well, you mentioned uh, this before, and another individual who fits that mold was the Freeze, who was, who was mysteriously released, supposedly walked away from prison out in California. Right. And then he becomes uh, involved, or he is the point person for the SLA. Right. Into which Patty Hearst was uh, right. abducted. Right. DeFreeze was re- released under very, very bizarre and very suspicious circumstances. That's another nut who should have never been left out of the let out of the federal nut bowl, for lack of a better term. Well, there's never an end to them, by the way. So. <laughs> oh, I know. And remember, the federal government has the key to how they get in and out. You know, so they they got a link there. Now, Klebold and Harris, I have a chapter on them. Now, Klebold and Harris were actually Satanists. Uh, Eric Harris actually posted a picture he drew of Satan orchestrating his shootings. Uh, from hell, which he posted on his webpage about an hour before he went to the bowling alley and met Klebold, and it's after that they went on the shooting spree. That wasn't really uh, put in much by the mainstream media. They didn't emphasize that. It was reported the next day by uh, CNN and then dropped. Um, But there again, um, there's a federal link there because Eric Harris's father was an Air Force officer. Uh, did you get any information that both of them were on uh, psychotropic drugs? I think uh, Eric Harris was yeah. on a serotonin drug that he had gone off of. Now, I get asked about this a lot. I was asked about it on another show. What I say is that these uh, serotonin drugs put people on an emotional roller coaster. Right. Like they get a great euphoria, but then a great crash comes, and that's mm-hmm. where we get the expression, up your meds, right. which has come into the mainstream lingo. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think that uh, uh, giving a serotonin psychotropic drug to someone like Eric Harris is already very emotionally disturbed. That downswing, that down roller coaster, so to speak, combined with these insane ideas they have already, will catapult them into actually taking drastic action. Now, I have a chapter on Jeff Weiss. He was the boy at the Indian Reservation who shot up his high school a few months ago. Right. And I'm told he was on one of these serotonin psychotropic drugs as well. So they seem to play into it. But remember, the main distributors of uh, psychotropic drugs is the U.S. federal government. They do it through Medicaid and Medicare and, uh, you know, military-type medical services. And they back a lot of the pharmacies who actually produce these products. So even behind that, there's a link to the U.S. federal government. Uh, in the little time we've got, do you want to touch upon the uh, Gannon situation? Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, Jeff Gannon threatened to sue me because I said on another show, A Closer Look, hosted by Michael Corbin, right. that I thought he was Johnny Gosh, the boy who was reportedly abducted by Satanists in the uh, early 1980s. And what I wanted to do was pay for a DNA test between uh, Jeff Gannon and Noreen Gosh to settle this matter once and for all scientifically. And Jeff Gannon, uh, he didn't affirm or deny that he was Johnny Goss. He sent me an email saying he would initiate legal action if I kept saying this, and I'm saying it now. I think he is Johnny Gosh. Okay. And I would like to, him to prove or disprove that with a DNA test. All right, we only got a minute left, but I wanted to say that if Gosh and Gannon are one and the same, we know, for instance, what is, is being proffered uh, to the Republican uh, 
uh, national committee members over there. But it also is very interesting because it might explain why Nelson got picked up and why Thompson is dead. Yes, very much so. Now, Hunter S. Thompson mentioned a pedophile cult in his last book called Hey Ruth. Right. So it's very, very suspicious. And, of course, Benacci, in the, uh, uh, a witness for the prosecution in the Franklin cover-up, right. identified Thompson as a snuff film director. Yes, he did. William H. Kennedy, that's his website, .com. And his two books are Lucifer's Lodge and Satanic Crime. We'll give you the short versions on that. Lucy William, we want to thank you so much for coming on. Sure, anytime. And listen, and uh, best to you, brother, okay? Very good. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good evening. This is Mae Bressel. This program emanates from Kazoo, K-A-Z-U, FM, in Pacific Grove, California. It's broadcast number 681, December the 24th, 1984. Just one more program on New Year's Eve next week, and then we tuck this year away. For better or for worse, we have survived the year of 1984. But as Ronald Reagan said at the time that he won the election, you ain't seen nothing yet. And with that grin on his face, we don't know what he means by that. So some of us will have to wait and see. Last week, uh, I finished the broadcast number 680 with uh, sections from a book called The Year of Armageddon. The, these sections were mailed to me by some friends in the East. The authors are Gordon Thomas, Max Morgan. It's from Granada Press, London, 1984. And I'm sure that Tom Davis out here in that Capitola and Aptos will be carrying this book, and you can order from him. But the importance of this uh, particular chapter has to do, that I've been referring to, has to do with Wild Bill Donovan, William Donovan, his close relationship to the Vatican, and how he was knighted with the highest order of the Vatican. He was the chief of the OSS and then helped form the Central Intelligence Agency and from the OSS days, working closely with the Vatican and simultaneously with Nazis, such as Heinrich Himmler and SS Karl Wolf and a whole bag of Nazis, Reinhard Galen and the aerospace Nazis. With, with that uh, team of the Vatican and the Nazis and the American intelligence working together, when the war was over, the bonds got even closer because they had now to coexist with Russia, which the Vatican and the United States Pentagon never wanted anyway. And when the CIA was formed, it, we have our officials in Rome, it became the official espionage uh, department of the United States government, but it also is a military branch, just as the Knights of Malta are a military branch. The sovereign military means military. If you look in the dictionary, sovereign is a supreme power. And authority and military relates to soldiers, arms, or war. Well, the Vatican doesn't have uh, men in uniform that go out and fight or tanks or airplanes, but it has the power over the members of the church to tell them, put on a uniform, to tell them, don't resist these people, to tell them to confess to political stories, even or political actions that they're doing. And uh, they are very much a part the Vatican and the intelligence community of running the world and the intelligence community can tell the Pentagon and tell Congress what to vote because we are in danger here or there. They are the intellectual 
military, but they are the military because you can't get the uniforms on and the war going without the idea, first, of who are your friends or who are your enemies. So this book says that the Knights of Malta serves an ideal cover for William Casey because he can operate under the organization of the Knights of Malta, and it becomes military from the Vatican, and Casey is the chief director of the CIA at home. The book says that both the CIA and the Vatican know that it is essential for the Pope never to be seen openly or aligning himself with the political aims of the CIA. And I talked about that last week. You can't be seen walking in and out of the door every day to CIA briefing him. Once a week is enough. And it says, working through an order, such as the Knights of Malta, the Sovereign Military Order of Malta, the country's leading Catholics and the CIA have a wider distance away from each other on an official level, level but they can meet uh, what you describe as casually and still get together and and they appear to keep the distance away from each other so that the Pope and the CIA station chief in Rome appear to have this distance so that they're not constantly having eye contact but their messages in between those men that have been made knights of Malta for the military part of protecting the Roman church the book says the CIA in Rome can brief the Pope once a week, and we talked about that. They can give him a weekly briefing, but the CIA would appear unacceptable if the station chief was in and out of the Pope's office every day. And uh, I, I shared that with you last week, and we'll go on from there. It says, nowadays, William Casey doesn't have to fly to Rome. He doesn't even telephone the Vatican. He has powerful emissaries in the order, the Knights of Malta, the Silver and Military Order, who conveyed to John Paul in an informal way what the CIA wants the Vatican to do. William Casey, the CIA director, has a wide choice of messengers, thousands of more to send to Rome. Some of these knights are secret. We don't know who they are. I'd like to know who they are. Some are well-known, like Lee Iacocas, Virus Corpus, Robert Aplanap, that was the godfather of, Robert, of Richard Nixon's, children he used to mix and fly down to his place for briefings baron hilton and they mentioned uh three others in this book maybe more later in the book but in this chapter william simon robert wagner and claire luce now that those three are important in addition to the ones i mentioned but how did the vatican and the, the policy of the military order of the vatican affect domestic policy William Simon is on the board of Helionetics, making the laser beams and Star Wars that the Russians do not want to get into with us, the weapons up in space. And he works with Edward Teller of the hydrogen bomb and Admiral Hayward. I mention these names many times, but every time he comes up with a new appointment uh, or something that's pertinent, I want to repeat it till you really understand how far-reaching they are. William Simon was the former chairman of the Olympics, and I wonder what would have happened if the Soviet Union had appeared. And he recently, it seems, or was just exposed recently, as being on the team of Kissinger and Associates, working with Henry Kissinger and Lawrence Eagleburger in the Defense Department on that mysterious advisory group under the name of Henry Kissinger and Associates. Another member that they cite here is Robert Wagner, the former mayor of New York, the He's the presidential envoy to the Holy See. Well, it was his law office of Mr. Wagner and uh, Weiss and Simon Rifkin that set up the uh, corporation papers for Otto von Bolschwein, the head of Reinhard Galen's 
domestic operations when Galen went back to Germany to be working with the BND, Hitler's chief of intelligence in the East. Uh, Galen was knighted by the Vatican and Robert Wagner, a knight can travel and in the offices of Mr. Rifkin. Claire Luce, I have mentioned many times before, and again, it's in this book, that's why I'm bringing it up again, is a knight of Malta. Well, Henry Luce is long gone, he passed away a few years ago, but Lifetime and Fortune, are Sports Illustrator, very political, and probably the two most political covers that I remember on the cover of Life magazine, when Henry Luce was alive, one was a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald, the famous picture holding the rifle, and the shadows under his nose aren't the same as the shadows where the rifle falls. And Oswald saw it when he was alive and said that the picture was uh, cut around and that it wasn't his body. It was his head and not his body. And the picture of Charles Manson at the time of the Manson killings to make it uh, appear that hippies and the deranged musician, the music occult group, killed Sharon Tate and uh, Mr. Polanski and the, everyone in that house. Um, those two covers are very political statements because they are facts of disinformation. In other words, they're not facts at all. They try to project a thought in your mind that will be locked in there, but in, which, in fact, isn't the way it was told, and uh, it was done for a purpose of propaganda. Now, left out of the list, and I won't run down their politics because you know how important they are, and think of them as passing messengers in and out of the Vatican is, J. Peter Grace, William Buckley, James Buckley, Alexander Haig, Patrick Trolley, Jeremiah Denton, and we could go on for many, many more. This book says all these persons have a common bond. They have the ability to call the Vatican switchboard and ask to be connected to extension 3101 to the Pope's desk at any time they want. They are knighted. And, of course, James Jesus Angleton is a knight of Malta. And uh, you can't. Uh, pass off the envoy to the Vatican, Mr. Wilson, William Wilson. Now, Wilson was formally in charge of Ronald Reagan's personal finances. He's one of the two men that takes credit for sending the Vatican envoy from the United States to the Vatican, something this country hasn't done for many, many, many years. Uh, Robert Keith Gray is proud that he did that, and the second man, who takes credit for having a Knight of Malta as ambassador to the Vatican is Senator Richard Lugar, the now head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who has close ties to the Vatican. Now, Mr. Lugar's name is controversial. I brought it up a while back on allegations that he was funded or picked up money from a Nazi in Switzerland at the time of Nixon's election, I talked about that on broadcast number 600 in 1983 and also another broadcast on Senator Lugar. Uh, there were two that I did, two tapes on Lugar, one on 620 and one on 600, if you want to look them up. One story broke in the newspaper, the uh, Senator Lugar bizarre scheme, Swiss bank and transfer of money. That was what it was titled. And it had to do with the signature of Horiasima, a fugitive and Nazi war criminal living in Spain who wrote a check that Lugar had picked up and put into a Swiss bank for funds for the Republican Party. There are many links of no Nazi war criminals, such as Lucio Gelli uh, and other Nazis, many of them funding the GOP and lined up with the GOP. Nikolai Malox in the office of Richard Nixon, the Book Wanted Search for the Nazis by Mr. Bloom goes into 
Nazis live in America, but the most controversial is the one that goes into Richard Nixon's office and uses it as a dummy front in Whittier. Now, this last election, uh, to show you how important these Vatican links are and how they can affect our Congress, uh, there was an election in November, and Senator Charles Percy wanted the nomination. He's in Illinois. And he was pushed out of the seat by a gentleman named Michael Goland, G-O-L-A-N-D, from Los Angeles. And Goland moved to Illinois for one year and took up a residency and put in a million dollars to defeat Percy. Now, this Goland has links to Israel, but the article on the uh, fellow in Los Angeles Times, December the 5th, said, a man who helped topple Senator Percy won't say why. Now, what happened when Senator Percy didn't win the election in November to go back to the Senate, he was in charge of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So by his being out of the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Richard Lugar took the position. So somebody who has possibly worked with a Nazi war criminal with taking money into Swiss banks from Madrid, um, who has ties to Nazis and to the Vatican, is in charge of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The overt purpose of this toppling of Mr. Golan, as I say, is that he is pro-Israel. But the story of his money seems to be secret, and the point is that uh, somebody close to the Vatican might have wanted Lugar to be head of the Foreign Relations Committee. He's close to the ambassador that he wanted in. He pushed that along with Robert Keith Gray, and he also in November got his promotion into the Senate. And I think it's significant the way our senators are soon to be moved out and bought so that the liking of them, you know, whatever the Vatican or the CIA wants, unlimited money will pour $23 million into Jesse Helms uh, in North Carolina. Money not identifiable from sources all over the world can come and Push these men out until we get a Senate that is all of one mind, no controversy, and behind it all is the possibility of the Vatican movers of William Casey and the various agents, William Wilson, and people traveling back and forth as Knights of Malta. This book says William Casey of the CIA and William Wilson were two people that told the Pope about liberation theology, that it is, in quotes, the greatest danger the church faces in Latin America. Liberation theology is political activism of priests. It means to liberate you from the death squads of El Salvador, to liberate you from Somoza, to divide up the property, to feed the poor, educate them, and have a better land use. So the Central Intelligence Agency, through Casey and Wilson, say to the Pope, as if this Auschwitz Pope didn't know it, that is the greatest danger the church, the church. In other words, you will suffer. Our CIA has told us that if you don't do something about liberation theology, your church, the Vatican, will suffer. So the chapter of this book goes on. The CIA, through their briefly uh, weekly briefings to the Pope, and both through that and the Knights of Malta, keep telling the Vatican of their strategy. And it's formulated earlier by the predecessor, Richard Helms, and they help the Vatican on how to combat clerical dissidents, as if the Vatican needs that help. But they're whispering or yelling into the Pope's ear. So that Casey, as a knight of Malta, his excuse is, in quotes, 
He only has the good of the church in mind. Well, I don't know if the church in mind is what William Casey should have. There is the United States of America, and our interests may not be the same as the church. The church and the CIA are pushing inquisitions and crusades. And if you don't like the Spanish crusades in Madrid or you don't know about them, get a few history books and look that up. Uh, $30 million last week was given by the intelligence community and the Defense Department to Mr. Pinochet in Chile in spite of the repressions and the rounding up of one or 2,000 of the youth. And as I said last week, Mr. Dobison was honored last week for what he did in El Salvador, admitting that he did set up the death squads in El Salvador where there are 50,000 people dead. So why Mr. Casey thinks he has the church in mind, the good of the church in mind, somewhere along the line there should be breaks put on this where we say, are the interests of the Catholic Church identical with the interests of the many people in the United States of America who don't approve of wiping out those middlemen, the the priests, the nuns, the archbishops, who are trying to better the lives of the very poor people that they have to work with. Now, in the book, The Year of Armageddon, they tell about the briefing of the church do-gooders, the people who try to help the priests, and they snidely remark about them as do-gooders, and one of the examples is Father Romero down in El Salvador. The CIA trains and finances police forces in Latin America that have tortured, murdered bishops, and archbishop, priests, and nuns. And these men are asking, Mr. Thomas and Morgan, how is it the Vatican goes along with that when members of their own church are being killed? Well, they're told that those people who were killed are enemies of the state because they have liberation theology. So there's no contradiction in being killed if you don't think like the people at home think, which is good for the Vatican. This book goes on, John Paul's Vatican Envoy to Washington, D.C., P.O. Lagi, L-A-G-H-I, knows that the U.S. Institute for Religion and Democracy, the initials IRD, was established in 1981, three years ago, and has received funds from the American institutions previously acted as CIA monetary outlets. The Vatican knows that the CIA is already funding the Institute for Religion and Democracy, and Mr. P.O. Lagi's work with that. And it goes on to say the IRD is currently engaged in a powerful campaign against church activists who do not agree with the Reagan administration or the policies in El Salvador or Latin America where they oppose the repressive regimes. So hand-in-hand, the uh, P.O. Lagi, and he is the Vatican envoy to our government. Now, the governments have exchanged ambassadors. He's the equivalent of the ambassador from the Vatican to uh, Washington, D.C. Now, just a few weeks ago, November the 11th, 1984, in the London Times, there's a story about our ambassador from the Vatican, the current ambassador who gets these briefings and works with the Pope, Mr. Pio Lange. And the title of the article is Nuncio at Death Camp. This comes out of the London Times. It says, the Pope's envoy to Washington, Monsignor Pio Lange, has been accused of having toured a camp in 1976 set up by the ruling hunter to murder left-wingers. Lange, as a papal envoy to Argentina, before he was the envoy to the United States, he was down there in Argentina, 
kept silent the secret of these murders for five years. He was guarded. The camp is the Nueva Baviera camp in the Tucumán province. Newspapers of the time, this is going back to 1976, said that Leagi, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, say he lectures to the soldiers in the barracks who do the killings on the need to protect Argentina from the dangers of outside forces. He goes there, he's going there in 1976, and for five years talking to the men in case they had a conscience on the necessity to protect Argentina, that they're endangered from an invasion of ideas, of foreign ideas. So Laju was helping the men who tortured and uh, 30,000 people were murdered, which is, according to this article, a euphemism for, they were missing, which is a euphemism for being murdered. Now, there are 14 other bishops were named in the newspaper clippings going back to that time period. I guess they thought nobody would ever look this up, just as Alan Dulles thought nobody would read the Warren Commission exhibits and hearings. At least 14 other bishops and high-ranking clergy in Argentina were regular visitors at death camp, one priest traveled to three camps to absolve the guilt of the torturers. The role of the priest there was to tell the torturers it's all right, kids, because the worst thing that can happen to Argentina is to be endangered by an invasion of ideas. You can't have a new idea, so kill these people because they have maybe a new idea on how to go grow crops, how to divide the land, how to build shelters, low-cost housing. All of these are dangerous ideas, health care, or even changing the president. The president now, as a democracy, he's been trying to investigate the murders that took place in Argentina, and that's why these articles are coming out. The London Times said none of the priests, none of the Vatican, ever denounced the military junta's dirty tricks where these 30,000 disappeared. This information that just came out this last November, according to the London Times, has made the Vatican furious and has enraged the Vatican because the new president, Raul Alfonsin, has revealed the secret list of those who cooperated with the killings and the torture in the Vatican. And among them was the nuncio at the death camp, Pio Laji, the current ambassador from the Vatican to Ronald Reagan. So you can imagine what he thinks on current Central American affairs after advising torturers and sure with the permission of the Pope that it's kosher and okay. One survivor of the death camps uh, provide information in the London Times about this. He's living in Spain. He's afraid he'll be killed. He's gotten death threats. And he personally saw Mr. Leonge there. And in fact, he was interviewed by him or saw him in the prison and he asked, did your family know where you were? Because these people were taken away. And this is one fellow who was lucky enough to live. And he promised them, this Vatican envoy, that he'd call the family and say he saw him, which he never did. And then in conclusion on this section on the Vatican and the CIA, uh, these authors say the Pope is aware of both the CIA and their links with one of his favorite secret societies, the Opus Dei. The Pope knows that the CIA is linked to the Opus Day, we might have figured this out with the kind of prominent people in there, but this is uh, a time where it is reprinted in a book so you can see it, and it goes on to say the Opus Day in Chile receives indirect financial support from the Central Intelligence Agency. The agency provides Opus Day with evidence 
of Jesuits who challenged the papal pronouncement. Can you imagine anything so sickening or insidious as this? Going very slowly on this, I have a lot of material, but I can't think of anything worse. The CIA tells the Opus Dei of evidence of particular Jesuits who challenged the papal pronouncement or who were involved in political causes the CIA opposes. So in addition to snitching at all other levels, the Opus Dei is a group that functions for the Vatican as well as the Sovereign Military, Sovereign Military Order of Malta. It goes on, it was the CIA who suggested to John Paul that he should encourage the Opus Dei to begin working in Poland. Uh, one time it was revealed that the Pope gave Lechwalesa $50 million, and later there was sort of a scandal because there wasn't a trace of what the money went to just for demonstration. And in conclusion, it says the Vatican and the CIA will always reach each other through the church institutions. There is, besides the CIA, there's the Knights of Malta and the Opus Dei. Now, is there a solution to this? Yes. Cut off every public official who is appointed or nominated who has an allegiance to the Church of Rome. And only allow, if you're going to have Catholic people working for you, let them be good Catholics or Catholics and not the kind that promise they'll do the snitching and do the kind of work that the Opus Dei and the Knights of Malta are doing. Their obedience shouldn't always be to the Church of the Roman Empire. There are other things at stake here, and people have to learn to get live along with each other. So in the Vatican feels better dead than red. So they encourage the snitches, and then the pressure comes down, and these people lose jobs, lose homes, and are killed. A very dangerous situation, and Many of those names, every time they come up in the news in another format, I'll run them down again because they are prominent in decision-making policies right here in the United States. They affect the entire world. Now, another group of people that are just as dangerous as the Knights of Malta, and I have to slip this in before I get back to Mr. Wild Bill Donovan, are these private armies that are formed that are raising money on their own with the, in quotes, on their own, with the Defense Department, with the, the CIA, when Congress says we sent enough to those people, we have no record of what they do with it, or they're torturing, or there's too many death squads, when the elected members of 50 states are sent to Congress and the congressmen vote on a certain issue, and goodness knows it's hard to get an agreement on that issue, if the certain person affiliated with violence and killings and counter-espionage and guerrilla warfare don't like the decisions of the elected government, they go out on their own. And I have a large amount of articles piled up on just that fact. But the Washington Post had a very important story, December the 10th, 1984, on this that epitomizes how insidious this is, and this is really the seed. This is our Gestapo because it links to those same Christian fundamentalists that I talked about last week and the week before the Nazis and Klans, there are direct connections of these people to the men in Idaho and to their national and international roots. Now, the title of the Washington Post story is Private Groups Press Contra Aid. The title says they press it. After you read the story, they've already given millions. It says they've raised millions. They have given out millions down to South America. This is the way the article goes, a network of conservative activists of military and intelligence officials, including several members of a Pentagon advisory panel on Central America, have stepped up efforts, efforts to funnel 
money, private money that they call humanitarian uh, aid to the Nicaragua rebels. John Singlaub is one of those people in charge of this. Retired General John Singlaub, president of the World Anti-Communist League, raises 500000 a month from wealthy citizens and groups since Congress cut off the back for the CIA fund. And I'm sure you've read this before, how they funding the Congress. John Singlaub works with the Nazis. He works out of Taiwan. He works with Reverend Moon and Mr. Sasakawa, with Pinochet in Chile, around the world. He's on the board of Western Gold that's still functioning and was part of that board when 100,000 was placed in Los Angeles to take documents on people who were law-abiding citizens in 1975 and in the 60s that were ordered destroyed and feeding them into these computers with that mysterious John Reese from London. And John Reese's wife, Louise, was on the staff of Senator Joe McCarthy. They're not... Their track record shows they're not on any humanitarian activities. And all of a sudden, their halo is so bright, you can hardly read the article because they want to send humanitarian material to uh, these countries to protect the death squads in El Salvador and the torture there and to put the Somoza people back into power in Nicaragua. It says Singlaub has raised, as I say, 500000 a month. Singlaub will do what the Defense Department wants, and the Defense Department does what Singlaub wants. And in this article, it melts it too. It says, Singlaub and others have not only sent millions of dollars in uniforms, food, medicine, and other aid to Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, but the Defense Department has helped coordinate their aid. They're doing this, and as I say, it says, because Congress cut off the money, the elected officials cut it off, the Defense Department works with them. Singh Laub, who was recalled from South Korea by Jimmy Carter, formed a private institute to train police forces in El Salvador and possibly the Contras and soldiers if the United States government will not. That doesn't sound very humanitarian to me. He has an institute called the Institute for Regional and International Studies in Boulder, Colorado, which is run by Alexander McCall, from Soldiers of Fortune. He's the military affairs editor of Soldiers of Fortune. And, of course, you get the Mr. Brown of uh, Soldiers of Fortune with the Christian Defense League. The fringe area of the uh, fight it out yourself will go in and do it, cut them up and slice them up. If your government will let us, we have Soldiers of Fortune, Sing Loud, and the Pentagon working together briefing and helping each other. We'll take a one-minute break and get back to this story in about one minute. This is May Brussel. It's broadcast number 681, December the 24th, 1984. This is side two of this tape. Uh, John Singlaub, on the board of Western Gold, a warrior from guerrilla tactics and warfare in Southeast Asia and around the globe, particularly in Southeast Asia, working with the Pentagon, having a meeting with the Pentagon. He set up his own institute in Colorado, and the institute is run by Mr. McCall of the Soldier of Fortune. And uh, Soldier of Fortune, of course, has uh, G. Gordon Liddy to their conventions and Gordon Novell and the late Mitchell Rebell and the various far-right savages, I call them savages, of our uh, spy systems, all coordinated and working together. 
and all part of the Permadex operation. I'll get back to the OSS and the Permadex, uh, the OSS CIA Donovan connections, because all of these people are a product of it. And I have to take the current news and show you how they're acting in the present as well as in the past. Now, this article goes on the Washington Post. Singloud met with the Defense Department in May of 1984 to study the wars in Central America and offer advice on U.S. military history. Now, if you think of the failures of what these military men and retired intelligence and generals have behind them, uh, what they've done with a dictatorship in Bolivia and what they've with Mr. Balazar before the current government changed hands, and that will be out by May or June of 1985, the relationship of the cocaine king in Bolivia and the Nazis there and the relationship of Singlaub to Southeast Asia and Nugenhan and the dope pouring into this country and the fascism in Taiwan and the policies of this country. They have been a failure in so many countries, and all of a sudden they become experts on military history at the Pentagon. Nation Magazine ran a story by Peter Stone on his meeting in May, and he said it was held at the request of Fred Ickley, the Undersecretary of the Defense, for, of Defense for Policy. Singh Laub, plus many veterans of the guerrilla warfare of the Philippines, Korea, and South Vietnam, included retired General Edward G. Lansdale and General H.C. Anderholt. <laughs> I know Charles Lewis here will stand on end when you understand it, how much he has studied Lansdale and anyone wants to know the policies of Southeast Asia. You study Lansdale. So here we have Lansdale, the Soldiers of Fortune, which are the private armies, then the Singwalds, who are, again, the secret private armies, then with the Defense Department that are over armies but are doing actions that are not allowed by Congress. So really, they are a government into... Sorry about that. Looks like uh, loading problems again. Come on, Internet. Yeah, it's been very interesting so far, hasn't it? Started out with uh, uh, William H. Kennedy. Well, we started out with an article about... uh, or this priest pedophile ring, and then uh, William Kennedy uh, exposing him over it before he passed away, and uh, I question what happened to him. Hopefully, nothing too nefarious. Um, who happens to be a Roman Catholic, so it's not Roman Catholic bashing. Of course, then we got May Brussel, which a lot of people knock her because she's quote unquote Jewish some reason, it's been blocked on me here at the 33rd minute. Imagine that. Um, 
Come on. Let's see what we can do here. But isn't it fascinating that um, uh, here we got May Brussel from uh, the 1980s telling us the same thing that's going on now. Hopefully this works. Okay, let's see if this works. The soldiers of fortune, which are the private armies, then the Singwild, who are, again, the secret private armies, then with the defense department that are over armies but are doing actions that are not allowed by Congress, so really, they are a government into and by themselves. There's no other way you can slice it. In the book, Deadly Deceit, Ralph McGee discusses just a little bit about Lansdale. I can cite many, many stories about him. But because he is advising on guerrilla warfare in the Central American, remember, Henry Kissinger, their buddy, and uh, the armchair buddy of all these fellows, went over to Central America first and put suggestions into order that they're working on now. In the book, Deadly Deceit, it describes how the OSS, during the war, the office of OSS, the predecessor of the CIA, and this again goes back to Donovan, before there was a CIA, and, and Donovan was the head of the OSS, had agents staged and over with Vietnam, and they worked in cooperation, the Vietnamese, with the OSS, and the OSS gave them weapons and ammunition to train the grill into an organized army, and once the Japanese surrendered in August of 1945, these people thought they would be free and have a democracy for the first time. And by 1945, Vietnam was for the first time in the history free of foreign domination. Then when the French begin to pull out, the Americans come in and take over, and the U.S. policymakers decided the French lost their will to fight in Vietnam. The Vietnamese helped fight the Japanese and wanted their own country. So the French say, well, we'll get out now. They want it, and they fought against the Japanese. So the French get out, and lo and behold, in comes Mr. Diem, handpicked by the National Security Council August the 20th, 1954. And it cites the example Diem was supposed to broaden the governmental base, elect an assembly, and take over. The French are out now, and the Diem is going to be there in Vietnam, just building up to our friend Mr. Lansdale. Once the decision was made, overnight the CIA intelligence had to decide on the situation in Vietnam. The French would be out. The decision is made. We'll take over. Let's put in Diem. Diem now was portrayed as the miracle worker who was saving Vietnam. To make the illusion a reality, the CIA undertook a series of operations that helped him turn South Vietnam into a vast police state from the democracy to the miracle worker. The purpose of these operations was to force the native South Vietnamese to accept the Catholic Mandarin Diem. And here's Donovan, the importance of the Vatican, being knighted by the Vatican, the military order of the Vatican, uh, the soldier, the, the sovereign military order. That soldier says, we'll put in a Catholic, Mr. Diem, and make a police state. If you don't want to be a Catholic, you'll have a police state. So Diem through Donovan, and then Mr. Casey, his protege also, and many of the CIA that were Knights of Malta, but particularly Donovan's hands over there in Southeast Asia, 
they made him a head of the Catholic manner, and he was selected by U.S. policymakers to provide an alternative to communism in Vietnam. If you don't want the Russians, if you don't want communism and divide up the property, take our Catholic puppet, Mr. Diem. Uh, McGee says it was a strange choice from 1950 to 1953, while Ho's forces were earning the loyalty of the people, fighting the French, Mr. Diem, a short, fussy bachelor, was in the United States at the Mary Knoll Cemetery in New Jersey and New York. Uh, Mr. Donovan, uh, Raymond Donovan, Secretary of Labor, uh, studied at these Catholic places and wanted to be a priest. Mr. Diem was at the seminaries in New Jersey and New York as a good Catholic. Diem arrived in Saigon in mid-1954 and was greeted by Colonel Edward Lansdale, the CIA man in South Vietnam and the head of the agency's Saigon military mission. Diem was opposed by virtually every element of South Vietnamese society. And this is so important because we're going to let Mr. Lansdale and Mr. Singlau and these various uh, people from Soldier of Fortune decide for these poor people down in Central America who will run them and who will run their countries. And if they don't take who we want, we'll split their bellies open and pour the salt in and gouge out their eyes. Mr. Lansdale decided every element of South Vietnamese society, Bao Dai's followers, the pro-French religious sects, the Buddhists, B-A-O-D-A-I was the one who had captured their interests or mine. His followers were the pro-French, the religious sects, the Buddhists, the remnant nationalist organizations, and, of course, followers of Ho Chi Minh. He had no troops, no police, no government, no means of enforcing his rule. But what he did have was the complete support of Colonel Lansdale, who came in and had all the money and all the manpower and the weapons and training and propaganda and the political savvy in the CIA's covert action chest and to create DM's government to take over then uh, from those followers to create that Lansdale was behind operating teams in North Vietnam. He stimulated North Vietnamese Catholics and the Catholic armies to desert and come south, and the teams would be promised Catholic Vietnamese assistance out of the Vatican and new opportunities if they would emigrate and to help contribute to this they would tell the people up north they had brochures that they handed and leaflets they passed out telling them that the Viet Minh Minh, uh, what to expect of the citizens in the new government that they attributed to the northern Vietnamese what was going to happen to them if they stayed there so they appealed to the Catholics to come down, get support, fight the army, do any lies you want and the covert action began now, that is Mr. Lansdale, just one little page on a long career, sitting there in the Pentagon with General H.C. Anderholt, A-N-D-E-R-H-O-L-T. Eight people met in the Defense Department in May of 1984, and they had a decision to move from the conventional warfare in El Salvador. The conventional warfare has only killed 50,000 so far and kept the property in the hands of those 14 families. But they're going to improve improve and increase the emphasis on psychological warfare, civil action, and break into small units. Anderhold had a 1,500-member Air Commando Association at Fort Walton Beach in Florida. And so they came in to advise them, what you need is what Soldier of Fortune shows in their magazines month after month, what Mr. Brown pushes, what 
uh, Mr. McCall pushes, what Mr. Singlau pushes, all tied together and working in the Defense Department uh, and having their own institute for regional and international studies in Boulder, Colorado. And they're going to get the Defense Department to do what Congress doesn't want to do and emphasize which kind of weapons is transferred for other ones. And the article goes on with the kind of weapon substitute, which is technical, but which is ridiculous. And one of the points of this article is that they're going to send in medical supplies for these people, that this is all humanitarian. Now, all you have to do is take the people that we're meeting and take what they've published and take where they've lived and use the examples of the countries they've been to. And you know there's more than medicine and food and clothing going on in this operation. Now, they went on to say they've raised millions of dollars, Mr. Anderholm, and the Defense Department, in quotes, hasn't helped much because of congressional opposition, but they have offered to help them in some ways. Their big problem, they say, in quotes, is the liberals in Congress. You see, the bleeding hearts of the liberals would ruin everything for them. Now, Singlaub has another organization. He has many of them. I have his name on many, many groups where he gets help from the Pentagon. He has the Institute for Regional and International Studies in Boulder, Colorado, on how to use these other types of warfare. Uh, that's one group that's formed now. And the other is the U.S. Council for World Freedom. And this, admittedly, in the Washington Post, received substantial coordinating help from the Pentagon. So tell me the difference. Why not just say the United States is at war against the Nicaraguan government, declare war, uh, which we really have done, but we hide it through these various organizations. It's so insidious uh, the way they hide the operations, and yet in a way they're not hidden. They're in the newspaper, but Congress seems to not be able to put the brakes on because when they vote, no, you've had enough, or no, Mr. Duarte still has all these massacres or deaths. No, we don't like what's going on. We want some accountability. Well, then they have meetings at the Defense Department between McCall and Singlaub and Lansdale and all the sleazy rot from the last years that's been going on, last 20 years and before. But obviously what they did in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam is a horrible mess, just as the Vietnam, these Middle East advisors, Henry Kissinger, helping Middle East and Asia, now Central America, uh, Middle East is a mess of what's going on with Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Lebanon. All of our policies these have been failures. These advisors are mentally sick. They are actually psychologically sick. And what's more sick is that they always get together to think who they can ruin next. And they don't look back and realize who they're hurting or how they're hurting. And they're just drunk on their own power. And because these people go beyond the reach of what Congress votes or wants, you can't say enough about them. And I have many, many articles on this gang, but they are a threat. Because, again, when America has food rights, when there's unemployment, if the banks collapse, if there are people gunned down like Mr. Byrd, the radio announcer in Colorado, by one of their cohorts and buddies, if the Klan and the Nazis had taken Dominica, and the fact that they fail doesn't mean they won't take other islands. When these people work together and have everything else they want, there's only one thing left, and that's America, the United States of America. That's us. Keep looking at us, because these people have our tax money. They have the approval. There's no brakes on this car. This motor is going fast down the hole. 
and the same sleazy characters who should have been removed after Vietnam for the Agent Orange, for the Phoenix program, for the Tiger Cages, for the torture. They should have been retired and sent to some kind of a funny farm and bring in new people because the old way didn't work. It bankrupted us. Our people from Vietnam are divided. They're sick. They're drugged. They fill the prisons. They have nightmares and diseases from the chemicals that were there. Why is it that they are allowed to come home and put on their uniforms again and go into the institutions that we have here and start all over with another piece of territory, another country, and break it up until, as I say, nothing is left in America. Then they'll be sitting in the Pentagon, as they have already, with the garden plot and and their uh, FEMA, the federal emergency, to decide then what to do for us. They already have their chain of command ready, and then we become the final and the last victims. And someday maybe the Soviet Union will have to free and save us before they can be free to fight those people that will take control and have control of our government. We may be rescued by Russia someday, so don't be too hard on us. Now, getting back to Donovan and the roots of this disease, we're talking about the overt cancers on this body politic. That's what John Dean told Nixon. Those messages didn't uh, uh, last too long. People don't remember that part of it. But where did the roots of this come, this Donovan of the OSS, with the Vatican written in the book on the Armageddon, the Armageddon. How about Donovan, the OSS of Southeast Asia? Going back to a few pages on Donovan and the control of news media and propaganda and the power, and to remind you of his work with Rockefeller Institute, with Herbert Hoover, and then with J. Pierpont Morgan, and then forming this OSS, the continuous the line of thought. Then he went to England to William Stevenson and Intrepid and merged the intelligence mind control programs, the psychological warfare, and the British intelligence with the United States intelligence plus the Vatican sovereign military knights of Malta to represent the Vatican interests at the same time. These pages are from 124 to 126 that I'm referring to in the book by Corey Ford on Donaldson, the OSS. It says, in Washington, D.C., in the building, the National Health Institute, uh, up, the institute was evacuated and moved upstairs, and in that building, the COI was born, the Office of Coordinator of Information. Coordinator of Information, the COI was born. Down below the National Health Institute, which is a marvelous place for Donovan to be, because when World War II was over and in the OSS, he was put on the board of the American Cancer Society, and I cited just last week, two weeks ago, how our government tested giving live cancer cells to people to spread the disease, not to cure. In those buildings, the National Health Institute, they were moved upstairs. Donovan's Office of Coordinator of Information took place, the headquarters for Mr. Donovan. It started during the wartime with radio broadcasts against the Nazis, and the uh, certain people from the government decided that they would study the broadcasts and counteract them for what would eventually be like Radio Free Europe or um, Radio America, the uh, propaganda media or to counteract German and Japanese propaganda at the time. It started with radio broadcasts against the Nazis, and then it grew to combine independent news networks with the War Department. And I'm just reading again the book on CBS, the origins of CBS, and the roots of these news networks, how they were independent stations, and then they grew, grew to be these networks. After December the 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor, 
the independent American broadcasting industry, the ABC, NBC, CBS, the independent American broadcasting industry that was not linked to the government or the military agencies became, in quotes, more cooperative with Donovan, who was working as an American agent. Robert Sherwood, the playwright, worked for Donovan in the OSS, and he had a falling out over Donovan because he felt that the director of the COI, the coordinator of information, uh, shouldn't be against Franklin Roosevelt. He hated Franklin Roosevelt. He hated the New Deal, and he felt that it wasn't right to have somebody uh, is in charge of this, like Donovan, Roosevelt appointed him, but it was probably the pressure from the Morgans and uh, that put him there, you know, in that position, strategic position of the OSS. But Sherwood objected to the appointment of Donovan. At the same time, he had been appointed the director for Foreign Information Service when they were just forming after Pearl Harbor. And they used the powerful NBC antenna from New Jersey to Paris. And that's how the networks became part of the War Department and stayed that way ever since. And the CBS transmitter was on Long Island. And this book says, Colonel Donovan believed that once a state of war existed, the propaganda arm should be exploited as a weapon of deception and and subversion and should be under the military supervision. And uh, there's a letter in this book to Franklin Roosevelt that Donovan said, now that we are at war, Foreign propaganda must be employed as an instrument of war, a judicious mixture of rumor and discretion and mixing truth as bait to foster disunity and confusion in support of military operations. That you use rumors, you use deceptions, and not much description, mostly deceptions, and truth, a little bit of truth to bait them, give them a little bit of truth, then whammo, break them up. And the main purpose is confusion in military operations. And he felt that propaganda is an arrow. This is Donovan. Propaganda is an arrow of initial penetration in preparing the people of a territory where the invasion may be contemplated. It is the first step. Then comes the fifth column. Those are the people inside the government. They're going to make it collapse from underneath and working with the press. The press comes in there and works with them. Then the militarized raiders or the commandos, and those are your special forces, your soldiers of fortune, your soldiers. Finally, the invading divisions with your home and group. Nothing has changed since the NATO invasion. They did this kind of thing. Few students needed anything in the paper saying they're in trouble. They're American students. Maybe hostages and income from the commandos. Finally, the truth. Now, Robert Sherwood objects of Donovan that he wrote in this was in March of 1942, and he told told Franklin Roosevelt. And this is very important to the matters we study now. It seems a long time ago, 1942, but it's pertinent today. Robert Sherwood wrote this. He said, "Propaganda broadcast." should stick scrupulously to the facts and let the truth prevail. The American image overseas would suffer if we emulated the act and it resorted to lies and deceit. The American image suffered. The agency of news, of propaganda and communication should be under civilian direction 
and not be a supporting arm of the military establishment which Mr. Donovan wanted because in time it would become an American Gestapo. This is Robert Sherwood, the well-known playwright, wrote The Petrified Forest, one of my favorite stories, or plays. Okay, he is saying that propaganda should stick. If you want to tell them, propaganda doesn't have to be a lie. It's something you say over and over again, like, if we win the war, we will give you all of you housing, or we'll give you clothing, or we'll have full employment. You don't have to tell lies about your enemy. Tell the truth of what would happen if you win the war. What would be better? He says, when you emulate your enemy and their methods and you resort to lies and deceits, deceits, it is a problem you will always suffer and never get over. The agency of news, propaganda, communication should be under civilian control. I'm repeating this again, civilian control, because it should not be the military branch of the establishment which Mr. Donovan wanted and which Mr. Donovan got because in time it would become an American Gestapo. Now, when Mr. Truman resigned, uh, didn't resign, he was out of office, his time was up, when he stepped out, he referred to the American Gestapo that he had created when the CIA was formed in 1947, literally the Gestapo. When Eisenhower left, he talked about the military-industrial establishment. The military establishment is what was referred to and the Gestapo by this well-known playwright objecting to the uh, Mr. Donovan's tactics. And remember, at this time in 1942, Mr. Donovan had Mr. Morleon from the Vatican and had another purpose that he was serving, the Vatican Church, and he would be knighted for it, and he would do things that Rome wanted that were not what the American government wanted but were okay for the Crusades and the... Inquisition. It was okay for them, but America had our share of problems with slaves and the blacks and the Indians, and to bring in possible Inquisitions later or Gestapo is something the United States does not need and didn't need. Now, this book goes on. Colonel William Donovan, uh, during World War II, kept working with the government agencies, and at the time, in the news media business, there was a proliferation of government information agencies. He was working with them. There was the COI's Foreign Information Service, one with Robert Sherwood, the OFS, the Office of Facts and Figures under Archibald McLeish, the OGR, the Office of Government Reports, the OCD, the Office of Civilian Defense, the OEM, the Office of Emergency Management. Now, these communication agencies in 1942 to 45 were getting $30 million a year of government funds. I heard somebody saying on a talk show this week you shouldn't object to the nuclear arrangements that Ronald Reagan has because he was elected by a majority. And that is so wrong. He was True, he was elected by a majority. But the problem is that the majority were only given the information that the ABC, the NBC, and CBS or Turner Broadcasting gives you, and it is all controlled, very heavily controlled. And these people already were mingling with the government way back then, and it's hard to get decisions or facts to the American people with this kind of money, $30 million of government funds, into the controlling of literally the minds of the people or what they're to know at that time. Now, it goes on that facts were elaborated and distorted. Some things were taken from Mr. Sherwood's office of foreign news. 
Editor Barnes selected things of interest. He handed them to writers and researchers. They were put on a private teletype, and they weren't exactly what he said. Facts were ingeniously elaborated or distorted, just like they are today. You can say the Russians have X amount, 10 times more than we have. Uh, you can say that down in, in Grenada that Mr. Bishop, Maurice Bishop, has an airstrip solely for the purpose of Russia invading Central America. Facts were distorted, elaborated, and taken from the Foreign Office and given to other people. In other words, what Mr. Sherwood sent in wasn't what they got out. In June of 1942, Mr. Donovan left his Washington offices and all these men with their $30 million in media linked up to the major networks and went to work with Colonel Menzies and Mr. Hambro and Lord Mountbatten over in London. And this is very important. And by Order 9182, they created the OSS. In this OSS, it was formed where as soon as it gets to London, and it was a more informal organization at the time of Pearl Harbor, with the British intelligence, the secret British intelligence, the special operations executives from London, Mr. Hambro, Menzies, and Mountbatten. Names very important to the future. They created the OSS under the direction and supervision of the Joint Chief of Staff of the United States Army. And they would take over the coordination of information so that the Joint Chief of Staff and the coordination of information in that office then began to be in the hands of the Army with all those millions of dollars of propaganda. The civilian aspect was swallowed up by Pentagon Order 9182 that uh, created the OSS. The, uh, the, all the clear white propaganda was handled by the Office of War Information, and all the lies, all the covert information, all the black propaganda was under William Donovan's OSS. The green light, the presidential order for the lies, was given to Mr. Donovan, who two years later would be knighted by the Pope among 100 special people, and then come home and form the CIA. So this is the transfer, a very important item of the transfer of the news media that first begins as one branch and then mingles with the uh, networks, our major networks, and then goes under the umbrella of the Defense Department when OSS was formed, 9182 order. It was to collect, analyze strategic information, and here in quotes was one of the things that Donovan wanted in quotes, to enforce our will upon the enemy by means other than military action in support of actual or planned military operations, including unorthodox warfare, guerrilla activities, resistance groups, subversion, and sabotage. The director of the OSS would be William Donovan. And here is the seed, the root of what was planted for Southeast Asia then in 1945 and 1954 with Mr. Lansdale and Mr. Singlab and all these people working. Mr. Donovan is dead, but Mr. Casey is protege, is our CIA director, and they sit there now and plan unorthodox warfare, guerrilla activities, resistance groups, subversion to enforce our will upon the enemy. And we, or they, decide who is the enemy we have declared war against Nicaragua because they didn't like Somoza, our West Point graduate. We declare war against the native populations of these various countries, against the poor masses of El Salvador. The majority won the election here in this country. Let the majority vote in El Salvador after you throw the guns away. 
So the point about Donovan is he combined these agencies. He took a great a trip to Great Britain. He used their British intelligence, melded with ours, as when Pearl Harbor was over. And this was the beginning. This was the roots. And then the man had the influence of his Knights of Malta to go in and out of the Vatican to snitch on the priests, to snitch on the nuns, to force the lower echelon of the poor Catholics to shape up to what other fascist government you want them to obey in, to not think for themselves. It's no different than Jones, Jim Jones. Uh, people ask about cults. These religions are cults. You take orders. You call the, the head man father. Yes, father. He becomes your father, replaces your natural father, and then you are allowed to do what is black propaganda, covert operations, guerrilla warfare, breaking down resistance groups, subversion and sabotage, which includes bombing places and blowing up uh, like the Bologna bombing, the train stations and the tunnels where people are killed and mutilated. Well, our time is up now. This is uh, the end of this broadcast. We can't stretch this tape anymore. But Donovan and the roots of our agencies are important and how they operate are important and how they are working today in the Pentagon in Central America is terribly important. The bloodshed just keeps rolling on and on. It had a beginning, and hopefully it'll have some end. This is Mae Brussel. I'll be back with you next week. You take care and have a good year that is coming along pretty soon. Okay, that was May Russell. She no, she's no longer with us either, along with William H. Kennedy. He's no longer with us. <clears throat> and she says the whole strategy here is either become a Catholic or we'll give you a police state. Maybe you now recognize what's happening in the United States of America. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting that she, even she was able to, back then, to connect uh, the Vatican, Knights of Malta, Jesuits. I don't know if she recognized the Jesuits or not. <clears throat> but we see that uh, this country is not operating unilaterally. Uh, it's under the control of Europe. This basically comes down to. And we do what they want us to do. And that's Rome. The Vatican. Roman Catholicism. Not daughter churches. And it's uh, not something that makes you feel too hot to create about. So I think now what we'll do is just <clears throat> We'll just do it. What the heck? Let's uh, try once again Montgomery's email, part three. We'll start over. You know, when he got to the first 13 minutes of it anyways, probably worth you hearing the first 13 minutes again anyways. This, uh, what's been going on in this country, the war uh, that Rome has been waging against us and the rest of the world has been going on for a lot longer than 50 years, you're going to discover. So, um, Anyways, check this out. <clears throat> Once again, this will be Gordon Comstock 
reading from uh, Shane Montgomery's email. This is stuff you're not supposed to know. I'm nobody. And uh, this, what we're about to get into here, is part three of email questions answered by James Montgomery, he of the late, great ATGpress.com. Al, I hated to hear about John's probation extension. It goes to confirm that anyone labeled a quote-unquote tax protester or free man or patriot will not be given a remedy from judges forbidden to do so under the 14th Amendment. The defeat of the 1787 Constitution was complete with the imposition of the 14th Amendment by the de facto Congress. President Lincoln knew what was being done. Just before he took office, he said, quote, as George Washington was the first president... So James Buchanan will be the last president of the United States, unquote. There was a huge undertaking to bring America and her people back under the rule of England and the Pope. The attack and conquest was complete and universal. England admonished the South for their owning slaves and making war against the United States, the Pope's henchmen, the Jesuit priests in the South, ensured the wrath of the North after the Jesuits murdered President Lincoln. The leader of the six Jesuit priests, John Surratt, escaped to England where he stayed, hidden by the Catholic Church until safe passage could be arranged to Rome. John Wilkes Booth was initiated into the Knights of the Golden Circle in Baltimore in the fall of 1860 and was not brought into the plot to kill President Lincoln until November of 1864, where in a meeting with the other Jesuit conspirators, Booth was drawn by lot to kill President Lincoln. John Surratt was finally caught and returned for trial for his part in the assassination. Jesuit priests filled the courtroom daily during his trial. On July 26, 1867, the jury came back split, half for conviction, half for acquittal. Surratt was jailed and denied bail. The following September, his case was nole prosequi, meaning the case would not be tried again. Surratt was then indicted for rebellion, and later the district attorney entered the same nole prosequi. The Jesuit priest, John H. Surratt, proven to be the ringleader in the death of President Lincoln, was untouchable. In the affidavit of Henri de Saint-Marie, 
Ames Report, House of Representatives, 39th Session of Congress, page 15, extant document number 9. He says, quote, I believe he is protected by the clergy and that the murder is the result of a deep-laid plot not only against the life of President Lincoln, but against the existence of the Republic, as we are aware that priesthood and royalty are and always have been opposed to liberty. Unquote. Henri de Saint-Marie Rufus King, Minister Resident. Whatever that means. Now, as you know, in the secret treaty of Verona, it says in Article 1, quote, the high contracting powers being convinced that the system of representative government is equally as incompatible with the monarchical principles as the maxim of the sovereignty of the people with the divine right, engage mutually to the system of representative governments in whatever country they may exist in Europe and to prevent its being introduced in those countries where it is not yet known, unquote. After the 1213 Charter made the Pope contracting party, he and the monarchs of Europe declared in this treaty that representative governments were an enemy to the Catholic Church and the monarchies of the earth. As we know, the monarchy of England retains its claim to America, but not without intervening and destroying the 1787 Constitution. The third prong of their attack was the Bank of England, taken over by the Rothschilds' money after Britain's bankruptcy. The Rothschilds put in place the Bank of the United States and later the Federal Reserve, which was born in the Bank of England. Where did the Rothschilds get their huge gold reserve? It seems like their banking house just suddenly appeared in the 1700s. In 1850, in the preface of The Negation of God, M. About said, quote, The Rothschilds, who would borrow money from the Pope at 6% interest, unquote. The tremendous amount of capital it took to bankroll many of the countries the Rothschilds loaned to only existed in Rome. The above is a matter of history, but is never taught and is allowed to disappear from all but old history books, lost forever thanks to the advent of television. He's right there, folks. Did you happen to see any of that real history about the Jesuits and Lincoln and Surratt? Did you see any of that in, in Ken Burns's uh, TV documentary about the Civil War? Hell no! Back to James Montgomery. His email questions answered. Here goes. I can't help but look at it in a humorous way. I think of what Curly of the Three Stooges used to say. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. No offense to Mr. M.A., because the majority of America is in the same condition. 
I was the same way until for the last several years I researched these subjects and had seen with my own eyes convincing proof that I had not been taught complete history, but selected history. Information concerning our history has been withheld from Americans. Who would think such important facts would or could be withheld from the American people? So tell him the reason we are under martial law slash executive rule is because the 1787 Constitution was ripped to shreds by the de facto Yankee Congress, who, one, passed the 14th Amendment and the Reconstruction Acts without a lawful government, two, overrode the lawful veto of President Johnson, who declared the acts unconstitutional, three, imposed the Reconstruction Acts and the 14th Amendment on the South, four, then redeclared war on the South after they had received a full pardon from President Johnson, five, removed the state's constitutionally elected representatives from Congress, six, removed the lawful Republican governments of the Southern states put in place puppet governments controlled by the military governors so the 14th Amendment would have the votes necessary to be ratified, thereby rendering the 1787 Constitution, which was the corporate charter for the United States to do business, null and void, making it impossible for the United States to continue to do business under their charter. This is why a permanent state of emergency had to be declared, because this was the only other way to rule the country and keep commerce flowing and keep the public unaware of the change. We have been under a constant state of emergency since that time. The declared emergency would allow the president of the defunct corporation to appear to continue to be doing business under the same charter with no changes as far as the public knew. This emergency rule under the war powers of the president also demanded a change in the currency. The 1787 Constitution was voided, which included the burden of Congress to coin our money and remain on the gold and silver standard under the corporate charter. They brought about the money changes over time so as not to alarm the public. Martial law now ruled the country. The government had to conform to the bank and its demands to use military script. The law and the money had to change in order for the courts and government to continue to operate because now they were governed by the law of the flag, maritime law, and the new 1870 Constitution. Yes, there is a new Constitution, thanks to just one of the many unlawful acts of the de facto Congress which passed the 14th Amendment 
without the required two-thirds majority in Congress or the three-fourths majority of the lawful states ratifying it. Also, the changes in the law brought about by the 14th Amendment were directly opposed to the 1787 Constitution it replaced. Don't think so? Show me in the 1787 Constitution where the American people and states could not question the debt in Congress or in the courts. After a few 14th Amendment cases came up, Congress removed this subject matter from the purview of the courts to keep them from rendering a decision on this matter. The courts will tell you it is a question for Congress, and they cannot render a decision for lack of jurisdiction. Congress will tell you there is nothing they can do. It has been the law too long, and it can't be changed. So, as a matter of fact, the 1787 Constitution is dead. You could also tell him this could not have happened except for the bank funding this fiasco to gain control of the country. The bank could not have come into existence without Washington violating the Constitution way back early on in 1791 and dividing the states into district states to be legislated over by Congress under the direction of the president, the CEO and Commander-in-Chief. This allowed the insular cases to come about after packing of the courts. By the bank loaning large sums of money to any government official they could, they completed their control of the confirmation process of our judges and the electoral process of Congress and the President, giving complete control of our government to the bank and the foreign interest it represents. Washington declared a state of emergency to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, or so he said. In reality, it was the only way the bank could operate in the states. Read your Constitution. Congress already had authority to put down a domestic rebellion and use the militias. There was no reason for Congress to give this power to the president beyond his constitutional authority. Washington declared a state of emergency to put down the Whiskey Rebellion, or so he said. In reality, it was the only way the bank could operate in the states. Read your Constitution. Congress already had authority to put down a domestic rebellion and use of the militias, and there was no reason for Congress to give this power to the president beyond his constitutional authority. The bank was chartered in D.C. Congress had exclusive jurisdiction in the district, not the Constitution. Remember, after the second bank charter ended and could not be rechartered, in 1837, Biddle obtained a charter for the bank in Pennsylvania. This would not have been possible except for President Washington having created district states which were extensions of Washington, D.C. So technically, you could argue the Constitution was bypassed 
long before the 1870 Reconstruction Constitution was put into place. And administrative law, as Mr. M.A. claims is the law today, that was overruled. By the time 1867 rolled around, everything was in place. The war and emergency powers of the president had been tried and upheld by the packed courts. Congress's legislative power over the states in the name of public policy was made complete by the 14th Amendment. As the Tulane Law School said, quote, the decisions wherein grounds were found for avoiding a ruling on the constitutionality of the Reconstruction Act leave the impression that our highest tribunal failed in these cases to measure up to the standard of the judiciary in the constitutional democracy. If the Reconstruction Act was unconstitutional, the people oppressed by it were entitled to protection by the judiciary against such unconstitutional oppression, unquote. Yeah, good luck with that one. That was from the dubious origin of the 14th Amendment, from the Tulane Law Review from 1953. You bet your A dot dot they failed the American people. The judges failed to uphold their constitutional duty in exchange for paying a debt they owed to those that gave them their rank and privileges. President Johnson failed because after his veto was overruled, because he was aware the government was being overthrown, he should have cried out to America, informing them of their plight, so Americans of that day could have while there was still time, thrown out those that would dare commit treason against them. Is big money and their foreign interests still in control of our system today, <laughs> you think? Anyone with an ounce of sense sees that the government is permeated with big money and, as recent events have shown also by foreign interest. Our electoral process has been corrupt since the bank was allowed to contribute to the president and members of Congress and our judges, obligating them to foreign interest. Only those that will do as the big money says will be elected. Only candidates with such credentials are backed so it does not matter to them what party wins, although now they can shape public opinion on anyone to have them elected or defeated via the press and government propaganda. The people in this country have been lied to and kept in the dark in regards to the true history of the present government. Tell him everything said above can be proven beyond any doubt. Conclusively, it cannot be disputed. We have the documentation. See the new history of America, 
written by the informer, which can be purchased from him, and the United States is still a British colony, parts one, two, and three, written by James Montgomery. Now that that website's down, those are going to be a little harder to obtain, aren't they? ATGpress.com. I'm hoping somebody puts them back up soon, in some form. On to the next email. The uh, Not the informer. James Montgomery writes, Hello, Rob. I am going to answer your questions, but first I must lay a few things out. I have been out of this system as much as one can since 1992. I have caused myself a great deal of problems thinking I was doing the Lord's will based on certain scriptures, such as you cannot serve two masters, you love one and hate the other, paraphrase, and come out of Babylon lest you suffer her plagues, paraphrase, just to name a few. Let's first look at why others and I have felt compelled to come out of this system. Others and I have discovered fraud and deception in our government, not to mention oppression and great harm to many in this country via the IRS and other alphabet agencies. The greatest problem that I have found is that not only is the above true, but also our history has been covered up, modified by unnamed individuals, to change the course of our government. This goes back to the founding of our country. I am talking about the charters creating the commercial enterprise we now call the United States. I can prove that we were allowed and encouraged to believe we were free and that the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War were overturned by the Peace Treaty of 1783 and the Jay Treaty of 1795 and the Treaty of Ghent in 1814. I can prove our forefathers were, for the most part, mainly concerned with their own holdings in England and their personal fortunes that were tied to England through trading in their businesses. Because of this, they conceded to the wishes of the king and allowed him to retain control of his colonies, but to do it in a way that the average colonist would not be aware of. The United States Constitution was just a continuation of the earlier charters, a continuation of the king's corporate enterprise. The states granted certain powers in the 1787 Constitution to the United States government slash corporation that it created, and no more. Yet, I can prove as early as 1791 that Congress violated the corporate charter and gave unconstitutional powers to the president, whereby President Washington created district states by, quote-unquote, 
dividing the states, his words, and since that time, Congress has continued to cede congressional powers to the president, completing the office of king. Congress is now going to give the president fast-track authority to enter treaties without prior Senate approval. The biggest fraud and unconstitutional act to take place was during and after the so-called Civil War, namely the death of the 1787 Constitution via Congress going out of session, sine die in 1861, and the passage of the, you guessed it, 14th Amendment. Congress then installed an unconstitutional de facto government under the disguise of the 1787 Constitution, which forbade their actions. The redeclaration of war against the South after the so-called Civil War was over and after they were granted a full pardon by President Johnson was against the 1787 Constitution and American jurisprudence. Since that time, we have had a military government, not a constitutional government. As soon as Congress went sine die, as a result of the southern states removing their representatives from Congress, he means... Uh, they were forcibly removed by the rump Northern Congress, the United States government had to operate in its military capacity. President Lincoln had to act as commander-in-chief. It was the only position left. He could not act as president. All states were not represented in Congress. So the corporation was dissolved. After the so-called Civil War and pardon, the southern states retook their seats in Congress. The northern states decided they would rather remain a de facto government because they had more power that way. So they kicked the southern states out of Congress again and demanded the new United States Constitution be ratified by the southern states before they could be readmitted again for a second time. The 14th Amendment was not properly ratified, and this is very easy to prove. The Republican governments of the South were kicked out of office by the military district commanders and puppet governments put in place to pass the amendment. This is a matter of history, but hardly anyone is aware of it. The fraud has been kept from Americans. Yeah, it sure has. Did you, did you see Ken Burns talk about this in his uh, documentary? Uh, no. The fraud has been kept from Americans by selected history being taught to Americans in the public school system, colored to meet the purpose of the military government and those they work for. If that weren't enough, in 1933, all Americans were made enemies of the bankers to force us to pay their fraudulent debts 
which they created. This brings us to the social security number problem that you were asking about. This number has one purpose, to number and identify those responsible for the debt owed to the bankers, making us chattel property, natural resources, or, to be blunt, financial slaves. Even with all this, Until recently, I had not changed my opinion about coming out of this monetary system. However, because of the nature of our government and its laws, this is not possible. The use of Federal Reserve notes is just as binding in maritime contract law, see Law of the Flag in Bouvier's Law Dictionary. The physical presence of your body in this country brings you under their military jurisdiction. Well, there goes George Gordon's argument. Remember, under the rules of conquest and military rule, see the dictionary, you have only the rights granted by the commander-in-chief. So to give up a job you have had for 20 years and violate your oath to your family to provide for their needs would be wrong and foolish. Why? Because you would not change anything by declaring you do not have a social security number and thereby losing your job. Yeah, there goes uh, George Gordon's argument uh, right down the drain. But even with this knowledge, I was willing to endure all. If it was the will of God Almighty that I stay out of this system, after a great deal of prayer and soul-searching, the Lord showed me a verse that I had already been aware of years earlier. I had written a paper on the subject of Israel asking for another king other than God Almighty. 1 Samuel 8. Last year, I was given a speeding ticket and was ready to go to jail if necessary. I believed God Almighty would be there with me to fight my battles against my enemies, according to Psalms 91 and other verses. I asked the Lord to show me if it was his will for me to fight the system on this issue. The Lord brought to mind the verse out of Samuel 8. In that day, when you cry out for me, I will not hear you. George George Gordon does mention this one a lot. That's true. The truth of this blew me away. I was forced to reevaluate positions I have had for many years. God Almighty said, because we rejected him as king, in that day when the earthly king oppresses us, He will not help us. If you fight the worldly king, you fight alone. This is suicide and utter futility, which is not the will of God. We were never free from the yoke of subjection in regards to the king and queen of England. This brings me to another verse of God's word 
that I based my separation on. If you are subject to a king, remain there until the chance of freedom comes. And that's a paraphrase. Because I was taught we were freed from the King of England in 1776, I did not feel any obligation to a tyrannical government. However, what God Almighty said in 1 Samuel 8 is controlling, so to speak. This is foundational for understanding all scripture on the subject of government in relation to God Almighty's children in their relationship to civil government. God's word makes it clear that the destruction of Babylon, i.e. this present system, it comes by his hand, not by ours, and not because of our being abused. So the long and short of it is, we do not have a constitutional government in which we could separate ourselves from. Because of conquest and military rule, and our later being declared enemies of the government and the bankers, we are under force of arms. In this condition, you will do as you are told or else. I leave the or else up to your imagination. So, to write a letter to the Social Security Administration and declare that you no longer have a Social Security number means nothing. The only way to retake our country would be to re-educate our youth and get them in as many government jobs as possible. At the same time, educate as many of the mainstream public as you can. This would be the only way to change anything. It took years to get into this situation. It will take years to get out of it, left to our own doing without the intervention by God Almighty, a small group of people with this knowledge will be denied access to critical government positions and labeled extremists. The facts are what they are. In the system or out of the system, the facts of our internment remain the same. That's exactly what it is. This is an internment. And you've got people out there voting every two and four years for their own internment, for their own commandant, their own EOW camp commander. I suggest you stay where you are and learn what you can, then teach this information to anyone that will listen. Pray and fast for direction. Signed, James. Here is another email from James Montgomery. Hello, Bill. I agree completely. I have already reported this along with documentation, and so has the informer. Maybe you have not seen it. In 1213, the King of England ceded all of his holding to the Pope. This is why Pope Innocent III is one of the parties of interest in the 1215 Magna Carta, and later that same year declared the Magna Carta to be null and void. Nice. The 1213 Carta 
was reconfirmed in the Declaration of Rights in 1689, wherein, after declaring many rights for the people of England, and that they were no longer subject to the Pope or the Catholic Church, it nevertheless declared in the last section of this Declaration of Rights that it would be null and void if it came into conflict with any prior carta. <laughs> the left hand gives it to you, the right hand takes it away. See the following quote. Three, provided that no charter or grant or pardon granted before the three and twentieth day of October in the year of our Lord, 1,689, shall be anyways impeached or invalidated by this act, but that the same shall be and remain of the same force and effect in law, and no other than as if this law has been had been never made, unquote. What a bunch of hiding the keys of knowledge, snakes. In the Treaty of Verona, November 22nd, 1822, November 22nd, the Treaty of Verona was signed. I wonder if that's got anything to do with uh, JFK's assassination. Hm. I never thought of that before. Hm. In the Treaty of Verona, November 22nd, 1822, the Pope entered an agreement with Austria, France, and Russia to destroy all self-representative forms of government because it threatened all monarchies. The Pope's henchmen, the Jesuits, have been responsible for the downfall of governments and murders of heads of state all over the world, the most notable being Abraham Lincoln. The secret treaty of Verona says, quote, Article 1, the high contracting powers being convinced that the system of representative governments is equally as incompatible with the monarchical principles as the maxim of the sovereignty of the people with the divine right, engage mutually to the system of representative governments in whatever country it may exist in Europe, and to prevent its being introduced in those countries where it is not yet known, unquote. President Lincoln knew what was being done. Just before he took office, he said, quote, As George Washington was the first president, so James Buchanan will be the last president of the United States, unquote. There was a huge undertaking to bring America and her people back under rule of England and the Pope. The attack and conquest was complete and universal. England admonished the South for their owning slaves and making war against the United States. The Pope's henchmen, the Jesuit priests in the South, ensured the wrath of the North after the Jesuits murdered Abraham Lincoln, the leader of the six Jesuit priests, John H. Surratt, escaped to England where he stayed, hidden by the Catholic Church, until safe passage could be arranged to Rome. John Wilkes Booth was initiated into the Knights of the Golden Circle in Baltimore in the fall of 1860, 
and was not brought into the plot to kill President Lincoln until November of 1864, wherein a meeting with the other Jesuit conspirators, Booth was drawn by lot to kill President Lincoln. John H. Surratt was finally caught and returned for trial for his part in the assassination. Jesuit priests filled the courtroom daily during his trial. On July 26, 1867, the jury came back split, half for conviction and half for acquittal. Surratt was jailed and denied bail. The following September, his case was nolle prosequi, meaning the case would not be tried again. Pleased to have friends in high places, and it doesn't get any higher than the Vatican, huh? Surratt was then indicted for rebellion, and later the district attorney entered the same, you guessed it, nolle prosequi. The Jesuit priest, John H. Surratt, proven to be the ringleader in the death of President Lincoln, the guy was untouchable. In the affidavit of Henri de Saint-Marie, Ames reports, House of Representatives, 39th Session, Congress, page 15, extant document number 9, Henri de Saint-Marie says, quote, I believe he is protected by the clergy and that the murder is the result of a deep-laid plot not only against the life of President Lincoln, but against the existence of the Republic, as we are aware that priesthood and royalty are, and always have been, opposed to liberty. Unquote. After the 1213 Charter made the Pope a contracting party, he and the monarchs of Europe declared in this treaty that representative governments were an enemy to the Catholic Church and the monarchies of the earth. As we know, the monarchy of England retains its claim to America, but not without intervening and destroying the 1787 Constitution. The third prong of their attack was the Bank of England, taken over by the Rothschilds' money, after Britain's bankruptcy, the Rothschilds put in place the Bank of the United States and later the Federal Reserve, which was born from the Bank of England. Where did the Rothschilds get their huge gold reserve? It seems like their banking house just suddenly appeared in the 1700s. In 1850, in the preface of The Negation of God, M. About, said, quote, dot, 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 the Rothschilds who would borrow money from the Pope at 6% interest, unquote. The tremendous amount of capital it took to bankroll many of the countries the Rothschilds loaned to, well, that only existed in Rome. Why? To bankrupt the world, to hold the title to all land, and to rule the people of all the world. The Pope's plan, I wonder if he means the Black Pope, the Pope's plan is almost complete, but his ownership will be short-lived. Thank God. Oh, thank God. 
The above is a matter of history, but is never taught, and it is allowed, I would say encouraged, to disappear from all but old history books, lost forever, thanks in large part to the advent of television. And this looks like a different email here. Wouldn't only U.S. citizens be considered enemies? Aren't members of a religious order freed from U.S. citizenship? I wish this were the case. This is the hurdle I have been trying to jump in relating this to our fellow Americans, causing them to realize the gravity of our situation. In the patriot literature that has been put out for years, we have focused on citizenship versus non-citizenship, meaning enfranchised versus non-enfranchised, or subject versus free man. With these terms as blinders, and the only possible outcome of the human condition in this country, well, the illusion is complete. No one has looked any further in the patriot community. Unknowingly, they continue the preaching of the conquering government's propaganda. Because they appear to be on the outside of the laws of the conquering government, they look no further. They don't realize that if they win the issues they have been fighting for, the conquering government is still in place and can put down any group that grows too large or is educated in the truth. To the detriment of their public policy. Have you ever heard of the legal term federal intimidation? Even with your knowledge, for which I commend you, for receiving knowledge via the Holy Spirit, our condition appears to be cloudy. The reason it is so hard to see is because Satan is behind it, the master deceiver. Under the international rules of conquest, and even if these rules had never been defined and codified by Lincoln, these maxims of conquest have remained unchanged for thousands of years. If country A attacks country B with military force and conquers country B, all inhabitants in the borders of country B come under the authority of country A because of military force and rule. The conquering army of A dictates to B its laws regardless of the status of anyone in country B. If belligerents in country B refuse to obey the laws or rule of country A, and if the civil police under the control of country A cannot enforce the laws of country A, A puts down the revolt of the belligerents of country B by their submission to military force, imprisonment, or death. The difference between country A and B is brute force by military power and the fact country B's military no longer exists either by defeat or infusion into country A's military. 
The reason country A's conquest is not seen or understood by the majority of people in country B is because under the art of war, rules of conquest and military occupation, it is best that as few laws as possible are changed by country A so as not to alarm the inhabitants of country B. This limits the length and duration and cost of conquest to country A. After a period of time, through re-education of the inhabitants via propaganda in the public schools, by twisting history and social studies, and by control of the news media, conquest is complete. The inhabitants of country B lose their original identity and take on the identity of their conqueror, country A. If country B becomes aware of their plight, country A has the option of finishing the conquest or further distracting country B via economic collapse, ensuring country B's loyalty. Another way to ensure loyalty is for country A to involve country B's inhabitants in wars, creating other enemies more easily seen and understood, thereby shifting country... Sounds like 1984, huh? thereby shifting country B's suspicion away from country A's leaders and their military control. Boy, that is 1984. I hope this helps, James. All right, we'll read one more email, and we'll call it a show. Hello, Fred. James Montgomery writes, James Montgomery here, Semper Fi, three-fourths Marines, zero, three, four, one months, 75 to 79. I am going to send you some emails I have sent to others. I try not to reinvent the wheels because of time constraints. The definitive treaty of 1783 is, for the most part, not different than what you have already read. Have you read the United States is still a British colony? If not, I can send it to you. I include all relevant treaties and charters. To just briefly answer your question below, you have to read the charters and understand them before reading the treaties you mentioned. The King of England created corporations called Virginia, Carolina, and so on. These were business ventures, family businesses, and irrevocable trusts because of the way they were written. The king's subjects were to lay claim to any land they settled for the king and were to send back to England a percentage of gold, silver, and copper, not only during the king's lifetime, but for all time, to go, therefore, to all of his successors and heirs. The king has, and had, a lodial title to this land. He owned everything below and above ground. 
You have to understand this before you read the treaties. We fought a war and supposedly won the Revolutionary War and entered into a treaty with the King of England. Question. Why was the king granting us lands and defining the borders if we won that war? Do those that lose wars dictate to the winners the conditions of the treaty? Now, read the 1783 Treaty of Paris again and show me where the king ceded the gold, silver, and copper to the states. I say states because the treaty did not cede anything to the inhabitants of the states. As a matter of fact, their condition was left up to the states to determine their status. Here in North Carolina, we were declared to be free men by the 1776 North Carolina Declaration of Rights. We remained so until the 1787 Charter slash Constitution was ratified by the states, triggering in North Carolina Section 22 of the Declaration of Rights, which negated any declaration or grant of land in opposition to the King of England's charters or grants. Only the land was ceded to the states that which was above ground, no mineral rights were ceded to the states. Why? The king could not cede the gold, silver, or copper to the states when it was placed in an irrevocable trust given to the heirs of the king. And those continue to be born even today. Since the states were only granted what was above ground, how could anyone after the 1783 treaty claim to have allodial title to any property? To have allodial title, you must own everything above and below. Own it completely, no lien. If there is no allodial property, there are no freemen, for the two are synonymous. The Jay Treaty began the process of the king regaining his land above, too. The Bank of the United States finished that process with the purchase of much of the congressmen, the office of the president, and the judiciary. Is the money still transferred to Britain? You bet. How? Why, you guessed it. The 1040 tax form is the transference, and it is a result of a treaty with Britain. I have this information contained in the United States is still a British colony, part one. And I am sure the informer could tell you even more on the taxation issue and its relevance to the 1783 peace treaty. I am going to stop here because of the reason I stated at the beginning. I will send you the emails I was referring to. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask. Signed, James Montgomery.
All right, folks, we're going to call it a show here. This has been part three of email questions answered by James Montgomery, formerly of ATG Press, going under the file of Knowledge is Freedom. And uh, you've been listening to Stuff You're Not Supposed to Know. Okay. That was, once again, you can find it on YouTube called Montgomery Emails Part 3, read by Gordon Comstock. Uh, Earlier, we listened to an interview with Keith Hansen, a.k.a. Visigoth, with uh, William H. Kennedy, who has passed away. And in between, there was uh, May Brussel, Hope is Day, Knights in Malta, and what else is the rest of that thing called? Uh, Vatican, I think Death something, Squads, whatever. Uh, first of all, I'd like to recant something like I said earlier. Uh, when I said, well, you have a choice, either a, a, a police state or become a Catholic, uh, I retract that. You don't have a choice. <laughs> the only thing you have a choice of it's really, are you going to become a Catholic or not? That's all. <laughs> the police state goes hand in hand with Rome. So, <clears throat> I don't know, folks. You heard some truth from people <clears throat> like May Brussel. Uh, may she rest in peace. That was 1984, somebody saying that. And nobody, hardly anybody was listening. When we heard about the pedophile rings and uh, what's going on with the Catholic Church and the priests. And that's not just this state or this country, I should say, but obviously throughout the Roman Empire. And then um, listening to um, what Gordon Comstock read in the emails from James Montgomery. Um, a lot of people argue it. Are you against what was said there? I don't think I would say is I challenge you to prove anything that he shared is false. <laughs> so, yeah. You want to know the answer to everything? Get right with God and duck and cover. I think pretty much. I hate to say it. I mean, it's pretty. I don't know anything else to do. I don't even know what church to go to. It was interesting. They started in that email about that too. Somehow, because you're a Christian or because you belong to a certain church, you have some kind of rights. Well, you know what? Even if you're Catholic, you're fodder. You're just subject. You're even more subject, maybe. Maybe less. I don't know. Maybe you have a few more freedoms. Temporarily. Let's look that way. <clears throat> um, you just heard some brutal realities. Probably uh, uh, named this uh, little series Part 1 or 2 probably in prop. Improper name. I don't know. 
All I know is if I didn't have faith in Jesus Christ, I know what I'd do. It's my situation. And so that's where I put my faith in this world. I don't know. I went out and looked for the truth. And um, it's where it leads you to. A crossroads, the true crossroads, you're going to follow Jesus Christ. Or are you going to follow the world? Are you going to... What do you do with that? I don't know. I don't know. It's a day-to-day thing. I wish I could tell you there's some great, simple journey. But it is quite burdensome. It is quite burdensome. To know how the world really works, and it makes me think about the people I love and the people around me. Because you know what the fact of the matter is, nobody around me. Heck, even the people that I've been on my show, you can't even have. And I'm talking about the people on my show. Not everyone, but the majority of them, you can't even have an honest conversation. The moment you disagree with something, it turns out in the end of the day, I hope they realize how uh, uh, pathetic. The reasons are, but you know, I don't have much to offer them, so who am I? Nothing to offer them, really. Tried to, but maybe I really don't have anything to offer, so think about the innocent, the youth, my son, if I tell them this stuff, how do I tell them? How do I tell him the truth? So that he could spend the next 50, 60, 70 years of life burdened with it? <laughs> I don't know. They can go through what all I, I go through. Like, and everybody that was, that I shared with you in this, this episode, part two, of this uh, Jesuit slash Satanism slash evil empire, I can only imagine uh, every single one of them that was on the, the recordings that I shared with you. Hey, and Keith, or Gordon, or Mr. Kennedy. What their lives were like, just being honest. What their lives are like. Those are still with us. Because my life has not gotten easier because of knowing all this. So, in, a, in a weird way, I have much more peace than I ever had, though. And I can't tell you that the average person would get that by hearing what I've shared with you. I guess in the end of the day, it's really what it is. For me, it's... which. I never, if somebody would have asked me three years ago that Jesus Christ is the answer, I wouldn't have said that. I would have said you're a religious nutcase. But uh, just come down and realize that that's pretty much it. It really is that. And then, uh, I guess you got to be like, like Abraham in this world.
uh, unfortunately for many of us, we're going to have to walk alone in this in the wilderness, alone with God. I guess as, as time goes on, maybe I'll realize how wonderful that is. I don't know. Anyways, uh, yeah, a lot of things to think about. This is a recording, if it could be recorded halfway decently. Uh, although it's lengthy, three hours and 15 minutes, it's worth listening to over and over again. And uh, I don't know. A lot of times I end up having these shows and I just don't know what to say because there's really not much to say. It's just, it's a gut kicker and it's a, I don't know. I don't know what there's to say. (laughs) Except that, uh, yeah. And, you know, the, I guess the one thing I, uh, that comes to mind is the fact that, you know, not a lot of these people, I know, like, I went involved my whole life not knowing this. Most people are that way. And that doesn't make them bad people. I think it's, the burden is to know this stuff. You want to share it with people. And who do you share it with? Because most people, if you would have, try to have any kind of conversation like this, talk about these sort of things, they probably punch you in the mouth. And it does make me think about my old life and I used to chase pretty women and have a beer. Kind of miss it, but I don't. <laughs> if you know what I mean. I think most of it is based on familiarity and going back to the old ways, but I don't know. Got to make a choice to make a choice and that is God, who Jesus Christ is. And then, based on what I understand and not necessarily what everybody else around me understands and being willing to be isolated because one wants to do what's right based on their own understanding. You know, the people that have rejected me on this show because of, like, the Sabbath thing, I don't, I really don't think it personally. Uh, also, the fact that I don't like being alone, but uh, <clears throat> I know that it's not personal. We're all struggling trying to figure out what's right. I really believe that most people have tried, like, versus to keep the Sabbath. Which is fine. I mean, I, I, as long as everyone is, it seems like everyone's on the understanding that it's not a Sylvetic issue. So you want to dedicate Saturday or Friday or Wednesday or Sunday to God. That's cool. Not my choice anyways. Um, I even understand why we have people stop fellowshipping with me about a verse in Scripture. Or maybe they don't like who I used. Maybe the sources that I use. Or they are against a certain website. Or they're... And these are issues that they're wrestling with, not me, so... I have other issues. So, anyways, another day. I don't know. Maybe I'll do a few more recordings. Maybe I'll do one more recording about the Sabbath. I never really did like him very much, but I think he ended up doing a good job. But at first, 
listen to Chris White's argument about the um, well, the, the Sabbath day was done with. I didn't really like it, didn't want anything to do with it. But now I think after doing, looking at his side of things and comparing things as a whole, scripture and experience and everything else, that well, maybe he did a good job. So maybe it's worth listening to. And um, there's a lot of things still about the moon, but I think I've I think I did a good enough job. Anyways, um, next time we do a recording, I'll mention it. But somebody sent me uh, an email about uh, a really good video to to watch. It's a video that you can't really listen to because there's you have to really watch the visual visual evidence that he has to share. That's Collier's, uh, James Collier's video. And um, you watch that and it's pretty hard to believe that we ever went to the moon. But we understand why we did, you know. So we did it because of, uh, when I say we, they, why they lied because of all the things that were going on. So it doesn't make it right. It just means why they did it. I don't know. I want to go join a church or something, but I don't know which one to join. Every single one of them, like this was brought up in the show, has a flag with a gold fringe around it. Oh, that was brought on the show. It was brought up in a different show. I think it was in Hamlet Files. Anyways, you just don't know who to trust anymore. I guess it comes down to, for me, it's learning to trust in, in God. Yeah. You know, because like, a guy like me, hey, listen, I've been, I have very limited abilities and skills. So it's not like I can buffalo my way through life. I either got to be honest or not, so. That's about my choices there. So, anyways, God bless. Take care. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic. When I can, I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.